This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. Hello, one and all, to episode 23 of Through the Years, the podcast that reviews Ring of Honor show by show from the beginning. As always, I am Trevor Dame, and as always, by my side, through well, not by my side, he lives different country, different coast, but... Matt Feuerstein, as always, is here, and will always be here. Well, I, I didn't know it was immortal until now, but I don't know. I think if you were going to give somebody that ability of immortality, whoever de- de- you know doles that out, they made a, a really poor decision giving it to me. You could do much better than that. Oh, come on. You're I, too modest. I have too modest to say that I shouldn't be the one person given the uh, ability to live forever. Uh, hey, there, I'm there, so there, humble. There's you and The Undertaker. All right, fair enough. I feel like that's also, I mean, you know, Undertaker's a good wrestler and all, but I think we could do better than him also. <laughs> Living forever? Ouch. <laughs> One person? Um, so we kind of got an interesting situation here where normally... I would uh, plug the Place to Be Nation Pro Wrestling Only Podcast Network, and I will do that because we always will do that. We must do that, and it's a great network. I mean, we're on it, so it has to be great. And I always try and plug a specific show. I would like to plug the Place to Be Nation Pod Blast tribute tribute to Vader with Kevin Kelly. So there's actually a podcast. If you want Kevin Kelly's thoughts on Vader, who passed away between the last episode and this episode of the show, I mean... I love, I think Place to Be Nation in general does really good coverage of when wrestlers die. Usually you get at least one podcast doing coverage on that, and their pod blasts are a little bit shorter. So, you know, if you're like, geez, you're asking me to listen to a three-hour through the years and then to a, another podcast, are you crazy, Trevor? Well, like, this is shorter, more manageable, if you're interested in that. And But why I'm going to say why we're in a little bit of an interesting situation is I think we have another non-place-to-be-nation podcast to plug this time, don't we, Matt? I very much am excited to plug this uh, this podcast, which I think we were a little bit late to the party on, but we both found it, and we are uh, we adore it, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, and that would be the An Honorable Mention, that's the title of the podcast, with Jeff Schwartz, who some people might know as, if you're a really hardcore Ring of Honor fan, I believe you would know him as JSWO, one of the more prolific posters on the old Ring of Honor message board, back when that was a big thing, and Shane Hagedorn, who, if you've watched Ring of Honor, you might have noticed him as Shane Hagedorn, who wrestled there, worked behind the scenes for a time. Um, was involved in some up, major matches and angles over the years. And came up through the very first um, Ring of Honor wrestling, the first class of the Ring of Honor wrestling school. And it's just them, they're picking, you know, they're picking different shows and topics in Ring of Honor's history and covering them, and they're lengthy shows. And obviously they have some insights that maybe, you know, Shane was there, Jeff Schwartz was there for a lot of those shows, Um 
and yeah, it's it's a very good show, and it actually is a nice companion piece for us because um, they're covering mostly stuff that happened after Hagedorn started working with the promotion, which is all stuff we haven't gotten to yet. Like there hasn't been really any overlap so far. Which so that's a nice little. If you almost want to leap ahead, you can listen to our show and then listen to theirs. And also, I think that they come at it from a slightly different angle. Uh, our show I have mentioned uh, was inspired by um, where the big boys play. It's a total fan podcast where we're just sort of going through chronologically and just giving our thoughts as fans and just analyzing the way we enjoy the promotion. Uh, this is a little bit different. This is more modeled after the Conrad Thompson podcast, where um, Jeff Schwartz, I think, plays the, the Conrad role very well. He he, uh, you know, got somebody who actually had involvement in the promotion and is coming at it from a more insider perspective. They review the shows, much like we do, but they also talk about some behind-the-scenes goings-on. You know, they're privy to information that we'll never be privy to. And so they, uh, so they analyze it from a much more insider perspective, while also being fans at the same time. So it's really enjoyable. Um, you know, I've you know, been basically uh, binge listening since I found out about it. Actually, it was kind of nice that I found out about it late because then I had so many episodes that I could just listen to all in a row. And I had a road trip recently that I listened to some on. Very good stuff. I, uh, I highly recommend it if you like this show at all. I can't imagine you won't like that one. Yeah, uh, so obviously your for- first loyalty has to be to us. But if you have... You swore on the oath. You swore the oath. You yes, swore it. I mean... We we took that rusty pop soda can. We used it to cut open our skin. We put our hands together, mushed the blood together. So I mean, you have to. We're your first priority, but we don't have so much time. Of you. We're like every three weeks, every month. I mean, but this show I think is also much more frequent. So if you want a faster drip of Ring of Honor podcast content, that is also the show for you. And the other thing I want to bring up is. When I first discovered the show, I immediately like ran to Matt, tell him about it, you know, just, oh my god, there's another one. And I posted about it, and I was reminded, and I feel embarrassed, but we were not the first Ring of Honor podcast. We've been doing this longer than an honorable mention, but there is still ongoing uh, podcast of honor at the PW Ponderings website, which covers current Ring of Honor. There have been people, you know, podcasts on the Ring of ROH world. They've been trying in the past. They've done retro ring of honor reviews, but that's kind of fallen by the wayside. But I just want to make clear there, there's a lot of people who have talked about ring of honor before and done podcasts about it. And even though I don't think anyone's quite done it like we have at this point, um, I don't want to make it sound like we're the only or one of the only two people that have ever podcasted about this. There's lots of good sources for ring of honor past and present. Yeah. I mean, uh, it was a it was a big promotion, and actually, um, given we were talking about the prolificness of Ring of Honor related stuff, we're recording this on the day that it was finally officially announced that Ring of Honor, along with New Japan, obviously, are running Madison Square Garden. And I feel like, as long as I am not dead uh, when this event occurs, we should probably cover this on the show because I've been going to ROH shows since 2005, which is not the as not the earliest, but seen a lot of shows in New York. All the show, all the original shows at the Manhattan Center during the the Sapolsky era. So I just wanted to throw that out there since uh, since this is an ROH podcast. It is crazy to me that a show with ROH's name on the banner is going to be at Ring of at Madison Square Garden, probably selling it out um, WrestleMania weekend. I am uh, I am intrigued to say the least, and I 
I don't know. It just feels a very sort of full circle for the company, but also for a lot of the fans. Yeah, it seems it seems crazy. Although to be fair, it's weird seeing a company I had such a strong emotional attachment to do so well during a period where I don't have a strong like. I, I think yeah. one thing I, I was That's talking sure. about I mentioned before on Twitter recently is. Um, a lot of times when I post on Twitter and people don't like something I say, they immediately click on my profile, find out I'm doing a Ring of Honor podcast, and be like, you just love modern Ring of Honor. That's all you like, robot. Like it's, And I just always have to explain, like, that couldn't be farther from the truth. I am, I don't hate modern Ring of Honor. I might not dislike, I might dislike very much the people that own it. I'm just not, it, it's not a bad wrestling company. It's just not a company I'm passionate about. And it's so weird to see, like, like, I think sometimes it's hard for people to accept that the thing you love, like popularity does not always mean you have to love something. And it, it's just weird that like, I can fully admit the stuff we're covering now where drawing 600 people was great for Ring of Honor. I prefer much more to the point where, you know, now they do thousands and thousands of people in big buildings. It, it's just a weird feeling to know I'm in the minority, I well, guess. Well, I, I don't... Are you really in the minority? Like, is there anyone who is really familiar with both eras that genuinely prefers a modern ROH from, like, an artistic standpoint? If they exist, I have never met them. Yeah, yeah, um... It's weird, like, I don't really know... I mean, this is probably, probably more for a more modern Ring of Honor podcast, but I don't... I really don't know who Ring of Honor's modern audience is because I don't see them as, like, a really strong, like... I don't see them as having a strong identity. Yeah, I was going to say, just, they don't have an identity anymore. I, I don't know what like ROH is supposed to mean at this point. Like, um, they put on good major events. They have some good talent. They have, obviously, the New Japan connection and, you know, the being the elite guys. But, like, you know, it's it's not the, the ultra-glitzy, really smooth, big-angle-oriented, like, number one company the way WWE is. It's not the hardcore darling promotion the way Ring of Honor of the period we cover is. It, it's not doing anything like stylistically that stands out like a Lucha Underground, which isn't, you know, setting the world on fire business-wise. It's just, I don't know what the hook for Ring of Honor is except of the idea uh, that it's the biggest company that in the U.S. that isn't WWE and for a long time, it's been the place where you can see the young bucks in the U.S. and New Japan in the U.S., although that's changing now. But, yeah, I just don't know what the identity is. I don't know. I mean, it's weird, but also they're probably going to sell out Madison Square Garden. So. Yeah, exa- exactly. I, I mean, <laughs> they just did a pay-per-view, I think, their last pay-per-view in Baltimore did one of their best crowds ever, and that was without like any real New Japan involvement, I think. Like, Ring of Honor's been really hot the last couple years now yeah and you know what it's it's strange to say but i wonder how much of it has to do with cody rhodes like he's he's really been able to put together like this brand for himself on um on the internet and he's sort of becoming like the most most well-known of the roh guys him and the bucks and uh and his his rise is and obviously they're doing all in um, which is, you know, not ROH, but very, uh, very closely aligned in terms of the people involved. And, um, and it, you know, his, his rise coincides with the peak of ROH's popularity. Absolutely. I think Cody Rhodes does, has quite a bit to do with it, along with the Young Bucks, along with just all the, the, 
the being in the elite stuff in general, like their Twitter presence, as weird as that is to say, you know, their YouTube series, I think a lot of that stuff benefits Ring of Honor pretty heavily. I would say Even for they're sure. building up their own brand, and you know they can take that brand wherever they want when their contract goes up. But I think while they're in Ring of Honor, all that stuff is like a huge, huge positive for Ring of Honor. Yeah, I mean they're like the booking in ROH now, and this is quite a tangent. But the booking in ROH now um, is not particularly noteworthy. But the acts are getting over from stuff they're doing completely independently of ROH booking, uh, just basically, basically through the internet and their own series, and New Japan, and like all sorts of stuff. And it's really an odd situation, but I guess that's just the modern media world. Yeah, yeah. guys are taking the initiative and using like the internet and using a bunch of promotions at the same time to make themselves stars. And it feels like Ring of Honor is just the company that kind of buys them up and benefits from it. There's a vacuum somewhere for someone to become a booker. And like be the, as creative as these guys are, and getting over their own group of friends, but doing it for a promotion. Because as far as I can tell, there's no booker anywhere that is doing anything that's really making waves creatively. But these guys are doing it, you know, for themselves throughout like a series of promotions. I think the only people that have been that savvy would be uh, like using the internet and things like that on the indies right now. Would be guys like Joey Janela and Game Changer Wrestling who are. You know, like doing the Joey Janela Spring Break shows and even the Matt Riddle Bloodsport show that did very well last Mania weekend. I, th- I think they're kind of doing some similar, like outside the box and admi- knowing how to announce and tease matches and making really cool and unique like hype videos and things like that and trying to f- come up with fresh matches that people hadn't considered to be dreamed matches. I think that's the only one, but I think yeah, there's more of a there's more of a market to get like an outside the box someone that's. That just knows not just like what to sell, but how to sell it to people. But but not even just that. But like that's you know that's still selling things in like the dream match model. But like what the what the elite guys are doing, the being the elite guys are doing is you know putting together characters and story arcs and like things that you sort of care about. And you know none of the things you mentioned are doing that. And nowhere anywhere in wrestling is doing that. <laughs> and that used to be kind of like a, the main thing that bookers used to do. It's basically like the Jimmy Jacobs promo, like uh, music videos he made for himself during the Jimmy Loves Lacey storyline that saved his career, except someone's decided to do that every week and make a career out of it. Yeah, and no booker or like creative person that is involved in an actual wrestling promotion is doing it at all right now. And that's very strange to me. It's a very weird time, and I feel like something's got to change. There's got to be somebody who comes along and is able to actually hook people emotionally again, um, the way that some of these wrestlers are doing it for themselves. Yeah, so as you can tell, we are covering a B show this week. <laughs> we feel we have so much time to talk. But actually, we have. there's no real news happened between the last show and this one, but there is one question. Last episode, I want to thank again Alan Cunahan for staying up so late in Ireland doing a marathon show with us to cover a very lengthy show in Death Before Dishonor. And there was a few things I had to cut in the interest of time, believe it or not, in the last show. And something was a question from Supersonic, a message board poster. He, You might know if you go to a few different message boards like um, Pro Wrestling Only and Voices of Wrestling. He does long, like, um, he's been covering, he's reviewed a lot of old Ring of Honor and PWG shows. And 
he asked a question that I cut, and I thought we'd uh, we told him we'd answer it. And I know you said you thought this was interesting, so you know this is relates to the last show we covered. I think we can tie it into the show we are about to cover. So his question was, "How does the original Death Before Dishonor deliver us the company's initial version of SummerSlam slash Great American Bash prior to Best in the World taking that spot? What make what makes the inaugural inaugural edition so successful in the Death Before Dishonor brand being generally treated with such reverence during the Feinstein and Silicon eras? Now, um, I think that actually the answer for this is pretty simple, which is, if I recall months and months ago, I think we said something about Dave Meltzer from The Observer saying that Ring of Honor at this, in 2003, was going about the idea of maybe doing two or three major shows a year, which I guess would be a change from when they started, which was more just like, we do one show a month in Philly, and every show we're just trying to hit a home run. And I think they just decided, you know, like one of those shows should be in the summer every year, and we'll call it Death Before Dishonor. And obviously that first show, you know, they loaded it up a bit. They had Paul London's final match on the indies. You had the second Ring of Honor Raven CM Punk match and the dog collar match. And you had Jeff Hardy, which I do think added probably hundreds of tickets. So if you look at the Death Before Dishonor in general, I don't think every single one of them was a huge blowaway show. But it definitely, I think they just knew every summer we're going to try and have one big show, usually. Or sometimes they turned into a weekend, and we'll call that show Death Before Dishonor. Just like Final Battle became this, every year we're going to try and have a big show at the end of the year. Just another natural point where you would think holidays, big crowds maybe are potentially there. And so I, I don't think it's that hard of a question, actually. Yeah, and, and there's, I think there's a little more to it than that. Um, for one thing, uh, Death Before Dishonor in 2003, like it took place in the summer, so I get the SummerSlam comparison. But I actually think in 2003, it felt as close to a full-on like WrestleMania-level card for ROH than anything had. You know, this was like easily their biggest show. I think, you know, and we'll get to some other shows that maybe challenge for it later in the year. I think it turns out to be their biggest overall show of the year um, in terms of, obviously, attendance, but also in terms of just the importance of the matches and the, you know, the climactic nature of some of the matches. You know, so far, the only one that competes with it is the first anniversary show. Um, and we'll get to some of the other recurring shows, that being uh, Glory by Honor is coming up pretty soon, and uh, Final Battle comes up at the end of 2003, obviously. But this one, you know, it was the first double DVD, I believe, that they put out. Um, so it was a big show. The I've mentioned that the arena, the or the venue, the Rexplex, it looked different than the other places. It looked bigger. It felt bigger. It felt just like a big deal. The crowd was really up for the show. Um, you know, it, it there was an epic quality to it. It was obviously really long. It wasn't the first ROH show that was really long, but it wasn't like some of those like endless filler like nonsense skit shows from 2002. It was just like match that had important backstory after match that had important backstory. It had the little video um, history vignettes before some of the matches. Uh, had a lot of promos. And I think the show delivered. Like, it was good. There were there was no, like, match of the year level match, but there were lots of very good matches. And, you know, the there was a it, it ended on a high emotional note it was memorable it was memorable the production was memorable compared to other shows the lineup was memorable compared to other shows um the storyline advancement was pretty memorable um so overall i just think it just 
it clicked and it was di- it felt it felt different enough they hyped it up enough you know it was one of the few shows that they actually had a name of the show before the show you know usually ROH would name their shows after the fact this one was named before even before it was a um, you know a, a yearly or a- an annual event so they did a lot of work to make this seem like a special show and i think i think that helped a lot yeah, that's an interesting point I didn't think about, about the naming convention. Um, and I think how that ties in is, just like when Ring of Honor was transitioning to maybe occasionally trying to aim for a few bigger shows in the air, I think I don't think it's a coincidence that that's around the same time we really started getting the first, like, what we would call B-show, shows that did not have, a, a clearly weren't aiming for a home run, maybe in quite the way other shows were, and... We talked a bit like online, you and me, you and I, about uh, was this the first B show? I kind of think it was in some ways, but really, you could argue that shows like Night of the Butcher and um, Revenge on the Prophecy in some ways were B shows. But Ret- retro just, retribution, the round robin challenge, I thought probably come close to fitting that description. I would, I guess, the distinction would mean would be I would call those shows like B plus shows in terms of like the card on paper. I would call this like a B minus show. Like this is a, this is a very, this is in some ways the least star power show, Wrath of the Racket that that we are covering today that we've seen so far. Just thinking about the guys who are not on the show that have been involved in Ring of Honor up to this point. Low key isn't there. Paul London just left for WWE. The Briscoe brothers were still trying to make a football team at you know their school. Um, Brian Danielson hasn't come back from Europe. Uh, Steve Carino will come back on the next show. He's not back yet. You know, guys like Doug Williams who aren't, isn't there occasionally. CM Punk is actually, I think, on a tour of Zero One, his first ever. It's mentioned on on the commentary. It's his first ever tour of Japan. Uh, and we've talked a lot in 2003 where most of the shows we've really praised how consistent Ring of Honor's been in 2003 and how, like, even if they miss a couple guys, it doesn't matter which couple of guys, they've, like, made the roster big enough that and deep enough that it's it's always consistent i feel like this might be the first show where you can say like the exception to the rule where they could have used a couple more of those guys on that list yeah well also raven that's another one who was oh, yeah, been yeah, in exactly. a lot of the recent raven. shows wasn't there um yeah but i don't even think it was just who wasn't there it was also what they did with the guys who were there because i you could see this this is still a pretty good roster of guys they had samoa joe they had aj styles cult cabana Christopher Daniels, Dan Moth, Homicide. You know, they they had a lot of, you know, big name guys on the show. They could have matched them in a way that was more that stood out more, but they intentionally chose to, you know, maybe do some less marquee type matches um for this new market. And it, it you know, it was an interesting result, let's say. And that takes us to tonight's show, which is Wrath of the Racket, which took place August 9th, 2003, in Dayton, Ohio, at the Montgomery County Fairgrounds, in front of what was reported as a packed crowd of 625 people, which, that would be on the high side of what Ring of Honor did outside of the one-year anniversary show and uh, um, Death Before Dishonor. So, I, I also, watching that this show, I kind of kept that in my mind, where it's like, man... That's like a pretty good crowd for early Ring of Honor, like a very good crowd. And if it's a, I think Gabe's even admitted. I think I might be wrong about this, but I think in um, the Secrets of Ring of Honor DVD Gabe did for kayfabe commentaries, he even mentioned I think 
I think, and I might be wrong, but I think I recall him saying um, something like, we kind of shafted Dayton sometimes, like, and, you know, that maybe we didn't give them what they deserved. And this is Ring of Honor's, not only their first show in a whole, in Dayton, Ohio, or in Ohio General, this is their first show outside of the Northeast. And so to do a crowd that's 625, I mean, that's pretty good. They, they were drawing between four and 500 in Philadelphia. Yeah, that's so. true. Um, it's interesting because, you know, obviously there are a lot of shows that you can point to for from Dayton where you're like, eh, they did not give them their full effort. But for a while, I'd say like for most of 2005, they did treat Dayton like it was a pretty major market. And they gave him some big shows. But that was really the only era where they did that. And it was interesting. It's interesting. Like just, you know, they, they, they kind of leaned into it a little bit for a little while. And then they kind of went back to treating it as very secondary. Like almost they took it for granted. I was going to say, like taking it for granted is the perfect way to say it. You know, they would, it was, it became a regular stop. It just, it would kind of be the place where it was like, well, for whatever reason, they felt they didn't have to put on, this can be the place where we can save some matches. We, we don't have to put on as big a card here. And like you said, there, there were exceptions to that. I mean, they got the first punk um, Joe hour-long draw. You know, they've, like you said, some big shows in 2005. But just in general, it felt a little, like maybe it didn't get quite what it deserved. And actually, we might have some insight onto why it drew 625 for its first ever show in Ohio. And that would be from uh, Poster Laney on Pro Wrestling Only. I asked if I could post this, and then I realized that I probably didn't need to because he posted it on a public message board for everyone to see. But in a a thread about our show, he had some good comments about background for this show, which is, I'll just quote him here, I attended a lot of, sh- of shows in Dayton, but I wasn't able to make it to Wrath of the Racket. I was at fo- I was 14 at the time and wasn't able to convince my parents to take me to this one. I have one story I can share right now that is somewhat relevant to Wrath of the Racket. When my mom checked into our hotel in Wilmington, it was adjoining the building where the show was held, a guy near the front desk gave her a flyer to the Ring of Honor show and introduced himself as one of the promoters. This man was Matt Stryker. The reason I mention this is that on the Wrath of the Racket show, Gabe makes a jab on commentary that Matt Stryker is so excited to be in Dayton that you think he promoted it. I also heard elsewhere that Stryker papered the whole city with flyers before the Dayton show. It may be possible that Stryker's greatest legacy in Ring of Honor is playing a big role in securing the Dayton market, which would become part of Ring of Honor's regular schedule for years. So, yeah. So Matt Stryker is both a great technical wrestler and a very good promoter of local independent wrestling i mean i i would say if he had anything to do with this like he did a very good job because again 625 was very good for ring of honor at this time and to a place that's out of the northeast the first time they've ever been there and i guess one more little coincidence is between the last show podcast and this one we discovered um an honorable mention podcast i was listening to one of their shows like you we, i've been binging a little bit and uh Shane Hagedorn mentions this is the first Ring of Honor show he ever attended live, and he describes this show as a life-changing event for him because at this show, he got handed a flyer that said, uh, Ring of Honor's wrestling school is opening soon, and, you know, CM Punk will be the head trainer. So, basically, like, you know, even though we can call this as a B-show, I mean, goes to show that, like, every show can be a big deal to somebody because apparently it changed his whole direction on life. 
going to the show. Yeah, and I imagine in two by two thousand three standards, as far as like a live experience, you weren't getting indie wrestling like this in most places of this high quality. So it was probably not a B show to the people in attendance. Yeah, I mean, I, I think something Dave described in the Observer was it was like it. Was, I don't know. Some of these shows he would describe as it's not Ring of Honor's normal level, but it's still better than most indie shows. And I don't know if that's true or not. But Mo- most most indie shows, I think it's fair to say. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, most. I mean, <laughs> better than your local mom and pop place, unless you were like near a JAPW or something, probably. But uh, Dave actually wrote in the Observer, and I always loved when he did this for shows. He does the license plate report. He writes, there were license plates from as far away as Kansas, Missouri, and Ontario, and several from Michigan in the parking lot, for it was reported by several sources as a great show. So I always love when someone at Ring of Honor must have told him, like, yeah, we checked where the people were coming from, and I, I here's think the license that, plates. That's something that would be interesting to me, too, if I was uh, running a promotion. Yeah, I mean, it's important, I guess. I don't know how well they could track ticket stuff, but if a lot of them were just coming to the door... Yeah, you would definitely want to know, like, how much of this is the local crowd and how much of this is, you know, should we run a show in a place like Michigan or something one day? You know, you would probably try and suss that out through DVD sale locations and license plates, as weird as that sounds. Yeah. Um, Also, it just sounds like a fun game. Like, just like, (laughs) you know, like you're doing on a road trip. (laughs) I wonder if they were having, like, a giant tote board where they're trying to get, like, all 50 states. Like, we finally got one from Alaska. Yeah. I bet you they are. Um, <laughs> a car from Hawaii would be interesting, though. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, we can, I guess, finally get to the show proper. We open with Ace Steel and Colt Cabana backstage getting filmed by an off-screen Lucy. So Lucy signed with the WWE developmental between the last show and this one, I think, or maybe even before the last show, I forget. But for this show, they kind of do this interesting conceit where... Lucy is apparently backstage holding a camera, being like the personal cameraman of Ace Steel and Colt Cabana. And we never see her on camera, but they act for this one show like she's still there. Which, I mean, I know some people felt like it was corny that Ring... I mean, CM Punk even commented on in in a shoot interview he had that it was maybe corny that, like, you're doing this storyline that Lucy gets attacked and that's why she's not in Ring of Honor when everyone knows where she is. But I do think it was kind of clever the way Ring of Honor wrote her out on this show. They didn't just... I realize, yeah, everyone knows she just left, but if you're going to pretend that's a storyline reason, I, I think what we'll talk about what they do here is, like, cute. I, I, I'll use cute to describe it. It's also a good twist on the WWE thing where somehow there's a camera observing people just hanging out backstage and the people act like the camera's not there. So at least they give a reason for there to be a camera there. Yeah. Um, so Colt is excited for the Field of Honor tournament and he wants to be in it. They may, He and Ace Steel make some Field of Dream jokes. AC says they need to focus on their match tonight. They're facing, quote, the Husk guy, unquote. Colt and Ace want to walk about six steps to find Homicide and Julius Smokes shooting dice. I always love these Ring of Honor backstage segments where whenever someone has to find someone or something's going on near, like, it's always four steps away. Like, they never have time <laughs> to be like, let's go down the hall and take a left. It's always like, oh, do you hear something? And it's like three feet off screen. These buildings are, these buildings are really small, Trevor. I, uh, I, I, I hope you realize this. 
I do think, I forget exactly what they said, but apparently the fairgrounds was kind of a dump. So, I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe you're more, you're more correct than you even realize about this particular show. Possibly. Um, Colt asks Thomas if he knows anything about the field of honor. Julia Smokes talks about the tournament in Smokes speak, which is completely <laughs> incomprehensible. Everyone acts confused. Ace Steel impersonates uh, Julia Smokes by going, and I quote, zippity bop. Um, Colt just wants to know what the field of honor actually is. Smoke says what people need to worry about is the syndicate bringing in the Rottweilers. So more vague allusions to the future. Colt and Ace just walk away. And the best part of all these Julius Smoke's homicide segments for me is always homicide in the background trying not to laugh. Like, Julius Smokes is one of the only people whose personality is so big that homicide is forced to play the straight man. Like, just the guy <laughs> in the background. Yeah. Being like, yeah, I don't know what to say, guys. He's Julius Smokes. But so, Julius Smokes, he says that the field of honor is about the cream of the crop. He says that. Um, and, and he says that the syndicate is the Rottweilers coming straight out the gates of hell. Um, so, uh, some of those are some of the big moves from Julius Smokes. I wa- why does Julius Smokes know so much about the field of honor and have such strong opinions on how great it is? That's what I want to know. That's something that, that's, that's going to be a thread throughout the show and probably through the last show or two where it seems like a bunch of people know a lot about the field of honor and a bunch of people, including the commentators for the company know absolutely nothing about yeah. the field of honor, which is such a weird way to play it. But <laughs> this will be a show long mystery, but we cut next to AJ styles and the amazing red somewhere else backstage. And AJ says they've defended their tag titles, noting that they've defended them a lot against the Briscoes. I wrote in all capitals in my notes, that's literally the only team you've ever defended those titles against. Because you just actually, oh yeah, like, you know, they're a team we faced a lot. That's literally the only team you faced. Um, AJ says the Briscoes are the past, the present is the prophecy. They uh, respected the Briscoes, but the prophecy, not so much. Uh, Gabe says the promo is done, but in classic Ring of Honor fashion, the camera keeps rolling. And AJ asks uh, Red how his injured knee is. Red says it's okay, and AJ just asks, straight? And I just assume AJ asks everyone that question. (laughs) Whether their knee is hurt or not, he's just like, straight, right, man? Straight. Like, just between you and me, straight. We can't can't be a team if if this isn't something that I know for sure. (laughs) Exactly. Like... Sign this piece of paper, and we can tag. Um, AJ is just checking. He's worried about Red. The SAT walk by. They say hello, and they're also worried about Red's knee. Red says, look, my my knee's fine. It's going to be fine. But then the SAT whisper to AJ, like, look after Red. And as we'll see later, AJ does not keep that promise. (laughs) He is not good at looking after Red. Um, That takes us to our first match of the show, a four-way scramble tag match. Special K of Deranged and Hydro defeat Don Juan and Fast Eddie, the Carnage crew of DeVito and Loke. Or actually, no, it's not DeVito and Loke. It's uh, it's DeVito, it's Loke and Masada, right? Yeah, it's Loke and Masada. That's an error from Cage Match. Cage Match, how could you do that? You blew it. Um, and you blew it. And the, the SAT, Joel and Jose Maximo, in nine minutes, four seconds, when Deranged pinned Loke after he hit a Rana and then he just held it for the pin while Dixie held his hand for leverage. Matt, how'd you, as always, this is just in storyline implications, not much. How'd you think this held up just in the pantheon of early Ring of Honor scrambles? I think not well. It, uh, 
you know, I, I think probably for a new audience that um, that was experiencing the scramble match live for the first time, it was probably a lot of fun. But as uh, two weirdos who 15 years after the fact are watching every single one in order, um, this was, I'd say, on the low end. It's, uh, I think it's possible that just scrambles are wearing out their welcome. Um, that's a possibility as well, but it's, you know, nothing really stood out as particularly good. There were some innovative moves. There was some cool stuff. Um, uh, and there's also a lot of Gabe talking about how fast Eddie can't see. Uh, that seemed to be the main thing that was <laughs> being discussed by the commentators. Um, but he also made fun of uh, DeVito. He said, well, didn't really make fun of him, but he said he was supposed to be here, but he doesn't know where he is. I don't remember that turning into a storyline, so it's kind of weird to even bother to say it. Um, he, do- he does this later, too, with um, Gary Michael Capetta couldn't make this show, uh, and uh, Les Thatcher has to do-, do the interview role instead. And later on, Gabe is something like, Oh, I let's you know Gary Michael Capetta might be out of a job, you know, with Les Thatcher, and he's just like, why he, why couldn't Gary show up? It's like he had a book sign in or something, which I assume was the real reason. But yeah, Gabe calling out basically every, well, not everybody, but a couple people who couldn't make it. I think it feels petty. Um, yeah, it does actually. It does. I mean, uh, Gabe would never do anything like that, so that's probably not what it is. But um, I'm just. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> so, um, there were, um, the, uh, they, the, you know, they also note that Joel has slimmed down, so it's sort of a reverse body shaming, and he definitely has slimmed down. So that, so that is, so that is something. But uh, there were botches here by both the uh, wrestlers as well as the announcers. There was a move where Fast Eddie had like Joel. It was almost like in a Rana position, like he was about to Rana him, but Hydro came off the top rope out of nowhere with a DDT, and. Uh, and the crowd went nuts for that, but Doug on commentary was like, that's good teamwork by Special K, but Drange was nowhere near that spot. So <laughs> Doug also almost called um, Hydro Jay Lethal, um, which he was like, Jay, I mean Hydro, which I mean, which I mean, obviously it makes sense. He was already Jay Lethal, but um, that, so that, you know, some some botches there. Um, the crowd really liked Loke beating on Drange, gave him this really big, uh, big time clothesline, gave him a Saido suplex. Um, but uh, and Special K actually were the ones that I thought looked the best in the match. Like the Carnage Crew, they messed up a powerbomb backbreaker. Um, I'd say everyone looked sloppy really, except for Special K. Um, but there was a you know the SAT did a double team pendulum slam, which got a holy shit chant. There was um, a second rope fall away slam slash neckbreaker combo by Fast Eddie and Don Juan. And I thought, I can't remember ever seeing that move before, anywhere. So I think that's actually uh, a notably cool spot from this match. Uh, do, you, do you remember seeing anyone else do that? Like a fallaway slam combined with a neckbreaker? Uh, I'm probably the worst person to ask for that, but I, I can't think of anybody, no. Yeah, I mean, so that's, you know, it's cool to see a move that you've never seen before. Um, Joel saved Jose from the spike pile driver, and then he sloppily hit a top rope Rana on Masada, and they did the Spanish fly on Hydro, but the TWA knocked the SAT out of the ring. And then Fast Eddie moonsaulted to the outside, uh, he landed in the front row, Don Juan then dove, uh, Dixie tripped Loke, and Deranged hit a Rana, and Dixie uh, holds his arm for leverage so Deranged can pin Loke. So it's kind of a you know, it's kind of like a cheap uh, pinning uh, combination right there. Um, 
Gabe appreciated, or excuse me, Gabe apoplectic that the first ROH match in Dayton ends with interference. Um, he always like he well he's still on this thing. I wonder when this will stop. When he acts like completely insane anytime anyone breaks the code of honor, except like a lot of the time. You know, it's like he acts like it's so rare and it's constant. It's constant that people do this stuff. Um, but it was super sloppy. I thought it was not that great. It also feels like every time they go in, this is the most maybe subtle that they've done recently, but it feels like a lot of the time when they go into a new market for the first time, they have to open the show with like something like a character that's wacky, or in this case, like a match that's kind of more on the crazy side, and then have someone come out and be like, this is, this sucks, or something like, yeah. or this isn't Ring of Honor, and this kind of continues that, we'll get to that in a second. Let's do I- arm bars. <laughs> I actually liked this match, I think, quite a bit more than you. Even though there was some real sloppiness to it, maybe it's just that the crowd was really hot. This was the first match, that, obviously, that they got to see from Ring of Honor live. They, I thought they were very hot for this. They were popping loud for, like, the opening arm drag spots, even before they did crazy things. Um, I continue, like, now that Paul Lennon's gone, Deranged is my remaining, like, better than I remember early Ring of Honor crush where when I watched him in this match, there's, um, uh, he takes a big bump on something and he just sell, like, he sells it on a suplex. He just sits straight up and looks around like he's a cartoon character before he, like, slumps back to the mat. And then when he crawls to his corner, he only does what I can describe as, um, He's basically swimming on the mat to get to his corner to make a tag. And, like, just the best cartoonish bumper of his generation, maybe. So good at this stuff, at least on the indies. A mod- um, uh, 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 Kurt Hennig for the 2000s. That's the only thing I kind of had a beef with um, and the on an honorable mention podcast is there was one episode where they kind of th- threw just a very slight low-level shade on Deranged. And it was like, what, you talking about my boy like that? Clearly, that's, that's that's my boy. That's my man. Clearly, people, this is this is the 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 best thing about rewatching ROH from the beginning. Although I did tell you early on, right? Keep an eye on Deranged. Yeah, he is he is a talent. He's a talent, yeah. and hopefully, he's doing great. And he actually takes like going to that spot. You called it a, the pendulum spot. I didn't know what the name for it was. Apparently, they've called it the SAT called it the washing machine. Oh yeah, um, that's right. How would how would you describe it really? Like just so like, had, so they have the guy upside down. His legs are like hooked over the neck of the two SAT members, and they also gra- each one grabs an arm. And they just sort of swing, and he swings all the way around. He's, he's dangling upside down, facing one direction. And they swing him all the way in the other direction, so he lands face first on the mat. He swings, like, over the two rest, other two, the SAT's head onto the mat. That's how I would describe it. And it's an absolutely insane spot, because, you know, most spots, the wrestler taking the bump usually at least has some measure of control on how they land. Or, in a lot of cases, usually they have a ton of control. They're the one really dictating things. With this spot... He has no real, he, he, you know, he can't put his arms out to, like, save himself. He can't really control the speed at which he's being, like, hurled to the, to the mat. And if you go to at, tre- Trevor, at Trevor Dame on Twitter, occasionally while I'm reviewing these shows, it's kind of a preview for the podcast. I'll post a little quick video clip of a notable thing just to kind of whet people's appetites and be like, hey, look at this stuff. This is what we'll be talking about. And so I posted this spot. And actually sparked a bit of a discussion where uh, David Bixenspan wrote, didn't Derange get knocked out here? And I'll say 
No, he. I, I told Vix, he didn't get knocked out, but you can very clearly see the ref having like an extended conversation with him after this spot, like for longer than normal. Normal after a big spot like this, you'll see the ref maybe just say, are you okay? And then walk away when the guy says yes. There's clearly a longer conversation going on here, but Derange does finish the match. Uh, Rob Naylor replied to David Bix's band, noted fan Rob Naylor, and you know, used to work for WWE, and he wrote, Derange definitely got hurt on this. They hurt a couple guys on this. They called it the washing machine. Um, dangerous deal that really didn't allow the person taking it to protect themselves. And then former rest- Ring of Honor wrestler Eric Stevens chimed in, who's a great follow on Twitter. He wrote, the washing machine hurt everybody that took it. Well, so, I, I did not, I missed this entirely. <laughs> This whole exchange. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I was actually kind of, I, I thought you might have missed it, I was saving it for the show, but I thought, apparently this is like indie wrestling's biggest, most well-known secret, is the washing machine hurt everybody, because yeah, yeah. three people chimed in about it. Yeah, it makes sense, like the guy is literally has no control over anything that's happening to them. They just are slammed down while all of their extremities are being held and driven by the their opponents. Like, it's one of those moves, you watch it, and you go... I I don't know how this doesn't hurt people, and apparently the secret is, well, it did hurt people all the time, but, like, I don't know why they would do it more than once in that case, but, because, again, yeah, like we both said, no, it's one, I've never quite seen many spots like this in wrestling history where it looks dangerous, and clearly the guy taking it has, like, no ability to protect themselves whatsoever, and it's it's, crazy. that That is super interesting. Yeah, um, and scary, and I'm <laughs> hope Derange is okay. <laughs> That's the, the second show in a row where Derange like gets real beat up. Oh yeah, because yeah, the, the last show was the famous low key maybe takes advantage of Derange and shoot kicks him very hard, and then you know one show later he takes this. So he's underappreciated he's, in so many ways. <laughs> yeah, he's he's underappreciated for not filing a lawsuit against yeah. the promotion. Yeah. Um, I'll just know a few things on commentary too. Gabe says this is Ring of Honor's first show outside of the Northeast, and he can't believe they did 600 fans because people say no one draws in Dayton anymore. I don't know if people say that. I don't remember that people said that, but Gabe's very proud that they uh, they did it in his in his promoter circles that we're not privy to. <laughs> his um his rec.prowrestling.promoter news group. They were really trading stories. Um, yeah. Fast Eddie takes one of the worst phantom pumps I've seen uh, when one of the SAT does a big spinning kick that goes completely over Eddie's head and like seconds after it happens, Eddie must have thinks it touched him when it didn't and he, he decides to bump for it. Uh, Doug calls it a glancing blow and then going to what you said about Gabe making some more comments about Fast Eddie being blind, Gabe says he tripped. Th- that wasn't a bump. He tripped because he can't see where he's going because he's legally blind. And... Um, it's a stretch, but I guess it's it. Like they set up for it, you know. It's like they prepped us for that logic by constantly talking about how legally blind Eddie is. After one big move, Gabe says, "If fast Eddie takes more moves like that, he's going to end. He's going to be crippled in more than one way." So I just, ooh, and Oy. but yeah, I actually like this. Again, I thought. I thought it was, even though there were some real sloppy moments, and like I felt bad because Fast Eddie was a big part of those, like having an off, like an off night, 
I actually thought, for some reason, this worked for me. I thought this was one of the better scrambles in some ways, just in terms of action. And again, it might have been that the crowd was so pumped to see a match. Now, I got one final big question for you, which is, this is, comes from The Observer. Dave Meltzer wrote, they opened with a high-flying spot fest of big and sloppy moves by design so Jim Cornette could come down and trash the wrestling in the company. Now, do you think they did any of this on, like, any... I know, I'm sure they opened with the scramble so that Jim Cornette could call it down because it's not Jim Cornette's kind of match. But do you think anything about this was sloppy by design so that Jim Cornette could call down botches or something? No, that's that's beyond bullshit. Jim Cornette didn't yeah. even didn't even really talk about the botches. Like, yeah, he, he, he talked he about the style about of wrestling. Work. The style of wrestling. Yeah, or, or how big they were, or things like yeah. that. He wasn't like, oh, you guys are fuck-ups. So yeah, the idea that it was sloppy by design. Like, Ugh. then apparently every scramble was prepper, prepping for this one Jim Cornette. <laughs> yeah, exa- because- exactly. That's such like... And you could totally hear Gabe saying that too, right? <laughs> and Meltzer being like, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> You're a genius. Yeah. Like, like, again, I'm sure the scramble was first so that Jim Cornette could call that distinction of, hey... You know, special case in what you expect Jim Cornette to be a fan of, and he shows you he isn't a fan of it. But I can hear Meltzer saying, and with Cornette in in the in the building, th- your booking ideas plus Jim Cornette, this is total wrestling gold. <laughs> uh, DVDs. Um, <laughs> Post match, Special K continue to party in the ring. Until Jim Cornette comes out to a standing ovation, Cornette calls for a mic, and on commentary, I love this, Gabe has to explain that they had a cordless mic for the show, but it wasn't working, and that the cord, they have a mic that's got a cord attached to it, but the cord is very long, so Cornette has to walk back to the entrance and just stand there and hold the mic, which will be something other wrestlers on the show will also have to do. This was an intentional botch, just to give Jim Cornette a reason to... uh, demean the company just so you know <laughs> i don't know who um who handed him the mic i forget i think he might it might have been our um god i forget his name our, our favorite uh old jeff ring- jeff gorman yeah jeff gorman our good jeff buddy gorman, i did the announce not the not the um commentary you know, gabe and doug not the commentary but the ring announcing yeah i was and- so excited to see him he's our buddy yeah i i, I it was great to see him and um when i was looking up doing research for this i found an old tweet where jeff said that uh jim cornett calling him an idiot was like one of the highlights of his whole wrestling career so yeah maybe this was by design so gorman could get that great moment of cornett being like hey you idiot like couldn't get a mic that had a longer cord um cornett shits on the match and special k he trots out a bunch of jim cornett style one-liners Cornette then says he brought a tag team to Ring of Honor, and the Midnight Express music music plays. It's midnight. It's Midnight Express esque music. It's not the actual Midnight Express theme, but yes, the dollar store version of Midnight yes. Express music plays. Yes, yes. And uh, Special K bailout in fear, but it turns out to be Dunn and Marcos. Uh, Jim Cornette obviously wasn't expecting them. He asks who the hell they are. Cornette says he's taken pills bigger than them. Um, the prophecy of Chris Daniels and Dan Moth then come out and attack Dun and Marcos from behind. They destroyed them in the ring with old school Midnight Express moves like a double flapjack, the rocket launcher, um, Alice in Danger low blows Dunn, and then Cornette smacks them both with the tennis racket, Dun and Marcos. 
not not done in Alice in Danger. Um, Gabe says there's no way AJ and Red can retain tonight if they have Jim Cornette on their side. And I guess in a way he was kind of right because Red didn't retain. Um, Daniels announces Jim Cornette as the newest member of the Prophecy. So that's their big opening segment, which is, you know, it's just, we'll talk about later. It turns into like a very standard kind of segment when veterans do a smaller indie. Yeah, I thought this was kind of lame, like just even at this point, because it was like... All right, so you're bringing this guy in. He's going to do something. And it's just like the least creative thing you can do. He's just going to put him with the, the top heels, and it's going to be a swerve, and he's going to be a bad guy, and he's just, and, you know, I don't know. He's joining the prophecy. Like, I, I don't know. It just, it just felt very uh, by the books. Well, also, the, uh, the pre-taped promos on the couple shows before this that Jim Cornette was sending in, you know, he was selling this, like, you got to go to the show to see what I think of Ring of Honor. And really, other than shitting on the first match, he doesn't really talk much about Ring of Honor as a whole. It's just, hey, I'm here, you guys are stupid and wacky, and I'm a member of the Prophecy. Yeah. Which, at this point, you know, that's, I wouldn't have felt like, wow, all my questions have been answered. But we go to BJ Whitmer backstage. BJ says he set the standard in four-way matches earlier this year in Ring of Honor, and then at Death Before Dishonor, he raised it. BJ says he grew up about an hour from Dayton, outside Cincinnati, and he says tonight his dream will come true in front of his friends and family. So when people look at this card and go, you know, BJ Whitmer getting the world title match, one of the reasons I think is that they were trying to, you know, do that hometown angle of Matt Stryker's got a singles match on the show against Just Incredible, and BJ's got a a big world title match. So here's a couple singles matches with Ohio guys. And also, BJ certainly has been given a pretty big push over the past few months as far as winning and stuff. So it's not so crazy that he would get the title shot. Yeah, and going to a little more of that local content, we have a Heartland Wrestling Association heavyweight title number one contendership match. Some guy named Nigel McGinnis defeated Chet Jablonski, scored to the ring by Brock Guffman, via pinfall in 6 minutes, 46 seconds, with a fancying, bridging, British-style, Nigel McGinnis-style pin. Um, yeah, so I guess because it's local in the area and those got uh, those people help them set up the show, they standard indie wrestling thing. You give them a match on the show, and this is Nigel McGuinness's first match in Ring of Honor ever. And in fact, as weird as it is, this match I guess it's this match is perfectly fine. It's not, you know, it's less than seven minutes. It's not gr- great. It's not horrible. But it, if you are into the historical novelty that oh, I want to see Nigel McGuinness's first Ring of Honor match. This match is for free on the official Ring of Honor YouTube, so just search Nigel McGuinness, Chet Jablonski, I think, or Chet the Jet, and you'll, I'm, I'm sure you'll get it. So it's there for people that want to see it. Um, before the match, Guffman got on the mic the manager, and he cut a pretty impassioned promo putting over Nigel and Chet, and even though he's trying to be a heel doing one-liners, he was mostly just like putting over these guys. It was... I thought even Gabe seemed pretty impressed by that promo, but the match itself, it's perfectly fine. Um, I was surprised that I thought Nigel bumped a fair bit for a guy his size. It was it was an interesting match in the sense that I don't think they were like swinging for the fences the way sometimes when you see guys get a debut match in a new promotion and they get this little time, it's just like balls to the wall the whole way. I felt like they kept a good pace, but also didn't feel like they were going to try like 
they weren't going to break their necks to try and impress everyone in six minutes. So it was kind of in the middle, and it, everything was perfectly fine here. Um, Jablonski, Jablonski looked average. Nigel got some of his European-style stuff in, but obviously he wasn't yet the the Nigel at the level we know. Um, some of the s- stuff I liked best was just simple stuff, like Nigel finding ways to escape wrist locks or stuff like that. But yeah, this there really wasn't a ton to this. It was just kind of a standard. If if you saw this on Velocity at the time, you would have been fine with it, like six minute match. Yeah, Chad is a tank. Like he was a really big guy. Um, but I, I agree. Like there's just there wasn't much to this match. But I do think that Nigel, you know, with his like European counter wrestling, the crawling through the legs stuff, and the you know the the wrist locks and stuff, it made him stand out a little bit from the other guys on the roster. You know, no one else really did that. Like, Doug Williams a little bit, but Nigel, you know, was still a little different. So I think that was good. And I think maybe one of the things that impressed Gabe, if I'm just trying to guess, is the fact that they didn't try to do some crazy, like, we're going to do everything we can. Like, just work a solid, basic match. But the fact that Nigel did something interesting. You know, he obviously was still pretty green, but he did something interesting and different and seemed competent in it. And I feel like that probably won them a lot of favor. And the crowd did give them a pretty big ovation at the end. I don't think the match was memorable really in any way, shape, or form, but it was appreciated. Yeah, exactly. And the, the one thing that bugged me a little bit is at one point during the match, there was a USA chant, and I was like, really? I mean, that, that still annoys me sometimes when... You know, the, just because a guy's foreign, USA, USA. Like, and I thought Nigel was like, even though Chet did fine, I thought Nigel was the clear star of this match. Those little, those little Nigelism moves, those little British little escapes, I felt like clearly stood out. I agree. And, it's weird, even like obviously we're gonna have a lot of these, but it's weird to see a Nigel match without lariats. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's always weird when you're watching these early shows where you see a guy where they're like. 70% of what they will be. Like, we were talking about Death Before Dishonor where Punk gets his new AFI theme music and stuff where it's just like, oh, that's like the extra bit I was missing where you, you, you when you watch from the promotion from the start but you've already seen so much of it, you, you just, you almost sometimes forget what you're missing. You're like, well, that's kind of what I remember and then things will come and you'll go, oh, yeah, that's what they didn't, that's, they didn't have that yet and now, now they're more of what I remember. Nigel, though, I'd say, oh, as much as anyone I can think of, really changed his style when he became a main eventer. And I think Les Thatcher in the past has said something about how, like, Nigel McGuinness was, like, I forget exactly what he said, but I think he put something like, like, Nigel was really bad when he started out. Like, he wasn't, like, a natural at wrestling. So it's, it's impressive to see how good he got, because apparently it was not easy for him to get to be to the Nigel he was. I remember hearing Brian Alvarez mention that years ago, like just how like he, he never saw a wrestler, you know, go from so terrible to so amazing uh, the way he saw Nigel McGuinness do it. Yeah, I think that's what Les Thatcher told him. Yeah, I think that's what I was trying to think of. Yeah, that there was just this huge... It wasn't like a, a Kurt Angle thing where you hear stories where like the second day of training, he was already wrestling a 25-minute match and looking great. It was like, no, apparently he looked terrible and just kept progressing and progressing and progressing. And he certainly wasn't terrible here. No, but that, that's, that's yeah. the thing I'll say is wherever yeah. he started, he was pretty far along then by the time he got here. Because while he's not the Nigel most people remember for Ring of Honor, I would say, you know, the fundamentals were all there. And yes. even a little bit of his, like, in-ring personality. Agreed. 
So we get another clip of the Matt Stryker versus BJ Whitmer match <laughs> hyping the up-and-coming Field of Honor turn tournament. So they keep showing that clip. The caption on the screen says, PURE in all capitals. Just PURE in all capitals. So that's the... All right, this is the interesting I noticed. So the caption says, PURE action that speaks louder than words. The only word that's in all caps is PURE. So I'm wondering, did Gabe know there was going to be a PURE wrestling title in the next year at this point? Because... It's interesting. Why else would you only capitalize the word "pure" in that sentence? He didn't capitalize "action" or "louder." He just did "pure." So, just like I thought, maybe the the fact that they keep using the Striker versus Whitmer clips is telegraphing that that's going to be the final. Like, I feel like I'm becoming the Oliver Stone of um, the Field of Honor tournament, where I'm like, "This is full of clues to the future. Follow the money." But, I. Uh, that's that's what I'm. That's my story. I'm sticking to it. He's been going. He's been mentioning that pure division since like February or March. So he's clearly has something in mind. And I guess yeah, yeah. he loves that phrase. Right. Um, then we go to homicide with Julia Smokes taking on and defeating Chris Sabin via pinfall in nine minutes five seconds after he hits the cop kill. Wait, no, not the cop killer. His probation officer doesn't want to hear anyone call it the cop killer. It's the Kudo driver, as Gabe reminds us multiple times on this show. It's becoming, it's, it's, <laughs> Gabe, I love that Gabe keeps saying like, oh, we can't call it the cop killer. But then he makes you, he tries to, you, like, you have to believe that Gabe gets it wrong every time. <laughs> because he's always like, oh, it's the cop killer. Oh, I can't say it. Like, he never <laughs> the Kudo driver. But, uh, Matt, what did you think about this match that probably had the uh, probation officer seething a little bit? Um, I thought that it was, um, I don't know, they, like, it wasn't bad. They did some cool stuff, and, you know, they're both solid wrestlers, but there was just something missing. It felt like a rushed TV match. Um, you know, like, it was kind of Homicide in that more, like, toned-down wrestling version of Homicide without some of the intensity that he sometimes brings to it. And I don't know, Chris Sabin... You know, he really stood out in TNA. Like he was, he did, he had a lot of great matches. But whenever I see him in ROH in two thousand and three, something is missing, and I don't know quite what it is. But this match, you know, it just—I don't know—it just wasn't great. They, um, you know, they 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 hit their big moves, you know, brainbusters and dives, and but then like weird stuff, like Homicide got the STF on and then just like let it go for no reason. Um, you know, they, so they had they had a few near falls. Saban escaped the cop killer, and Homicide low blowed him, and then hit another. Uh, co- I mean, Kudo driver, and Gabe gave him a dangerous <laughs> call, and he won. It's weird that Gabe doesn't complain about Homicide breaking the code of honor with the low blow. You know, considering some of the other stuff. But you know, it just there was a lot of stuff in the match. I just never thought that it held together. It didn't feel like they were. I don't know. It didn't feel like Homicide's heart was in it. Uh, that I mean, I guess it makes sense knowing he had another like longer match later in the night. So I get that, but that sort of, if we're just judging this match by itself, never really felt like it was anything special. Although I did enjoy Homicide at the end of the match going into the microphone. Carino, you a pussy motherfucker and that's a shoot, bitch. Oh, God damn it. That's quite Homicide uh, for you. That's very Homicide of him. But uh, that's probably the most memorable thing from this match. I mean, I agree completely. I think I wrote, this is a hard match to feel emotion towards in either direction. Um, I agree. I feel like Homicide was holding back for later in the night. It, maybe it's more noticeable with Homicide because 
I know Samoa Joe has described Homicide as a guy who tries to put something special into every match he has and just really is all effort. And this match didn't feel that way. So when it's from Homicide, that really stands out, I think. Mm-hmm. Especially when it's something like, you know, there's no big Tope Con Hilo thing in a, in, a, in the match and stuff like that. It's just, yeah, I, I don't know if he was just pacing himself or what, but... And, and I and I felt bad for Chris Saban watching this because Gabe on commentary talks about how, you know, Saban had fans who drove in from Michigan to see him. And this is a star making, you know, and on paper, you would look at this match and go, Chris Saban just started getting booked with Ring of Honor recently. You know, Homicide's a very talented wrestler. You, you would think, man, getting a singles match, they're going to, that this is a star making opportunity for Chris Saban. And instead, it's anything but. Like, it just... If anything, it hurts Chris Saban a little bit because, like you said, it's it adds to a list of matches that will grow. Where you look at Chris Saban and go, oh, "There's just something not quite there." And you know, in this match, that might not be his fault again because Homicide, I think, probably wasn't fully in this match. And in a way, Amazing Red completely screwed over Chris Saban because if Amazing Red doesn't get injured, Homicide doesn't have to pull double duty. Maybe this match gets like 15 minutes and he just goes balls to the wall. But we don't get that here. We get he's just a kind of a very blah, just like, oh, we, we, I mean, it's again, it's not bad. I don't know how to describe it. It's just, it's just a match. That's such a lazy way of describing things. That's the Brian Alvarez school of, of describing wrestling, but it really was just a match. It was just a match with the caveat they're two very good athletes. So when they have just a match, you know, there's still some impressive stuff in it, but it just doesn't feel like anything that you would ever remember. Yeah. So after the match, as Matt said, we get, we get the advancement of the homicide Carino feud with homicide, grabbing the camera and going Carino, you're a pussy motherfucker. That's a shoot. Vince Russo scripted this. Um, moving on the second city saints, a steel and Colt Cabana defeat Alex Shelley and Jimmy Jacobs in 14 minutes, and 19 seconds. I actually think, again, cage match, you're letting me down tonight, because I think this actually might have been a little bit shorter than that. But anyway, Ace and Colt win. When Colt pinned Shelly after he and Ace hit a really good, like painful-looking Colt 45 neckbreaker combo on Alex Shelley, uh, I thought this was, this was a good tag match. This was probably the, the best match on the show up to this point. And, you know, I, I think when you watch this match, this is a match where you... With with Shelley and Jacobs, it is not a star-making match, but it's a match where you watch it and go, if these guys keep showing what they're showing here, they're going to be just fine. Although I guess in Jimmy Jacobs' play, case, it's if he keeps showing what he shows here and then goes into business for himself and shoots a bunch of um, like YouTube sensation skits that get him super over when he's about to be fired, he'll be just fine. But like they both looked really good here. I thought Ace and Colt worked surprisingly well. I mean, I guess it's not a surprise since Ace was Colt's trainer, but I thought they really did look better than I would have remembered as a tag team. They they did pretty good as, like, um, the team in control. I thought it was a little surprising. You know, Jimmy Jacobs was always so small that you would say, oh, he's always going to be the face in peril. But Alex Shelley is actually the face in peril for this tag match, and he takes a couple really vicious bumps. Like, there's a Colt Cabana German suplex that, Shelly takes in such a way that the crowd's chanting like, holy shit, just off a German suplex. He takes a real painful looking spill. There's a spot where he gets held by one of the Second City Saints with like his arms trapped and then 
I think Ace takes a big running drop kick to his like chest that looked really ouchy. And um, yeah, I, I just thought this was a match where everyone worked hard and and looked good. And it's always funny seeing Jimmy Jacobs so over with the Huss gimmick. Like it's one of those gimmicks that within minutes of him coming out, it's over to people that didn't know what it was. Like to the point where he has Huss on the back of his trunks. He's keeps doing like the hands gesture, the berserker bruiser Brody hand gesture or whatever it is. And the crowds, you know, hussing and half of the match for half of the match. I would say one of every two times Gabe and Doug are even calling Jacobs, just calling him Huss. Like, Huss lands a drop kick or something like that. And it's crazy to think that, like, he had that gimmick that was so over, and then he transitions to another gimmick that was really over with, like, the lovelorn Jimmy Jacobs, and then he goes to the Age of the Fall Jacobs. Like, for a period, he was kind of like the indie Chris Jericho before Chris Jericho in his ability to reinvent himself over and over again. That's a good point, yeah. Like, this was so, so strongly associated with him, and he dropped it completely for almost the rest almost his entire career it's 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 pretty interesting but it's obviously a very clever gimmick to have for yourself as a uh, as a young up-and-coming indie star um as far as the match i you know I, I noted you really don't get too many like just straight up normal mid-card tag team matches in roh uh really ever but especially like during this era i can't think of too many you know you had on Death Before Dishonor, you had the the purists against the um, the Outcast Killers, but you know that was more of like a showcase match for the Outcast Killers. I'm, just, I'm sorry, not for the Outcast Killers. Should have been for the Outcast Killers, <laughs> for the purists. Um, but this was actually just like a straight up like we're a match. Like obviously, um, Cabana and Steel are the stars, and the other two are the up and comers. But they were still sort of treated like equals in a way in in the ring. Like there was a fully competitive match, um, so it was just like a normal tag team match. And I thought that was a novelty. Um, I actually think that Cabana and Steel. Now we've seen them twice have t- normal tag team matches. Uh, one against the Hit Squad and one against Shelly and Jacobs. And they were both pretty darn good. They were both much better than I thought they would be. So yeah, I agree. I was surprised. There, I would be interested in seeing more of them as a tag team because they're just better than I remember. Yeah, I totally agree. And um, this match, I thought that the early part of it was didn't fully click like i appreciated that it was simple and it was a formula and they were getting the heat and you know and i liked that but there were some things that just i don't know didn't fully come together i thought the crowd wasn't super into it early on uh there was a spot where shelly went for like an arm drag on ace but ace didn't go with him and they said that ace blocked it but i feel like it was a botch no i I thought that was a pretty clear like miscommunication between the two yeah um and you know i thought you know that it was you know it was all right but it didn't totally get me um, then, uh, after the hot tag, I thought everything was awesome. Like, it was just like a full, awesome indie style, big moves, dramatic near falls. Um, uh, like, uh, Shelly went for the shell shotgun Colt, but Steel broke it up. And then, uh, Colt hit the fort, the Colt 45 neck breaker and Shelly just folded up like an accordion. Like that was a really holy shit move. But the high angle German suplex, uh, from earlier that where, you know, Shelly, um, where Ace pushed Shelly off the ropes and Cabana hit the suplex. That was pretty damn amazing too. Yeah. And I, and I liked that it was followed up with Steele trying to throw Jacobs off the ropes. Like, just like they set up that move. Like, he was pushing Jacobs off the ropes, but then Jacobs hit the Rana, the swinging Rana. I really liked that. I thought that Shelly actually looked 
really, really good. Like, I thought he stood out as being, like, pretty awesome here. And um, it wasn't a star-making performance, because I don't think he showed, like, tons of personality in the match. But as far as just, like, an athletic underdog wrestling guy, like, I thought that Shelly was the standout guy here. And Cabana and Steele, yeah, I agree. Their team, I would hope we get to see more of them. I mean, I know we get to see some more of them, but I hope we get to see a lot more of them because they they really they were they had something. I don't know what exactly it was, but they had something. It was the the I'd say overall it was it was a good it was a quite good match. I thought that the last few minutes were great. And it's worth noting that Jacobs and Shelley were again really young at this time. Um Dave wrote in the, in the Observer after the show that Jimmy Jacobs and Alex Shelley, who are both around twenty, are getting a lot of praise for just how good they look with less than two full years in the business. So yeah, apparently they were doing well enough that people were telling Dave, like, no, these guys are doing really well for their experience level and their age. Which, again, like, it's, I, I agree with you. If this wasn't a star-making match. I, you know, we both said that. But it is the kind of match where, especially when you keep in mind where they're at in their careers, you're like, these, these are two guys to watch. For sure. Um, a couple other notes from the match, I would say, is... Uh, I continue to like the way that Gabe writes Lucy out. He explains that Lucy isn't at ringside because she's backstage looking for scoops on the Field of Honor tournament, and he even sells it as a cocky gesture by Ace and Colt to leave her in the back. Like, they think Jimmy and Alex are going to be such an easy match, they don't even bring her out. Like, I thought that was like a cute way, again, to acknowledge why isn't Lucy here at ringside. Um... I thought there might have been an IWA chant at first. Maybe my ears were wrong. I wonder if they were cheering for IWA Mid-South, since probably a lot of these guys got their experience, early experience there. And then the one last note I'll have is J- um, Gabe's describing the Jimmy Jacobs gimmick. Oh, is, he, is he acting like the Berserker? Is he acting like Bruiser Brody? And then at one point, you know, what's with the furry boots and stuff? Uh, Gabe makes a joke where, like, they're talking about how he's like Bruiser Brody, and Gabe says something to the effect of, like, well, I hope Jimmy isn't stabbed in the shower. And if you listen to Doug Gentry afterwards, he has, like, what I can only describe as a guilty laugh, where he (laughs) laughs, but you can tell he feels guilty that he's laughing about it, and then he just kind of, it's something you hear a lot on through the years, actually, and then you just kind of try and move on, that you feel guilty that you laughed at it. Um, So I, I, I thought that was, like, a real genuine moment of friendship with uh, Doug and Gabe. And I know some people didn't like that kind of stuff. I think an, we we should count how many times I mentioned an honorable mention on this episode, but I think something I just heard them talking about was like, um, I think Shane Hagedorn was not a fan at times. It seemed like Doug Gentry and um, Gabe were just trying to like make each other laugh on commentary. I don't think they did it that often, at least in what we've seen so far. And I find that kind of endearing, like that when those moments where they can just be friends trying to crack each other up or do some little inside thing, because I don't think they're doing it all the time, actually. Yeah, I agree with that. And I, um, yeah, I will miss Gabe and Doug when they when we get past them uh, as far as commentary goes. I uh, I enjoy their shtick. They are not good, but. They're kind of good, <laughs> you know what I mean. And I'll, I'll like I'll always say 
anyone that calls down Gabe and Doug on commentary needs to go back and listen to the first six months of Ring of Honor commentary. And like, once you do that, yeah, I'm not saying I'm not saying you will love them, but you will. I don't know if you'll ever be able to hate them after you listen to the what the, what they replaced. Yeah, because I mean, yeah, they are so above that. It's not even close. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Even though you would say, oh, well, Eric Gargiulo, you know, did good work in CZW, or, oh, I heard Steve Carino, you know, do Ring of Honor in recent years. It's like, that's not what this was. Go back and listen to Donnie B and early Steve Carino and Eric Gargiulo, you know, like, other than Jeff Gorman, who was a breath of fresh air by comparison to everybody else in that first year. Um, like, yeah, you should be, you should be thankful that Doug and Rob are calling, I mean, Doug and Gabe are calling it. Yeah, Eric Gargiulo, he did good work in CZW, uh, so no offense to him, but he did not do good work in Ring of Honor. <laughs> no, def- definitely not. Um, that leads us to the main event of the first half. This is the big, you know, Gabe always liked to kind of p- treat the shows as two shows before intermission and after and peak it. So this is this shows you how kind of weak the card is. <laughs> This was the best match he could peak before intermission. Matt Stryker defeats Justin Credible via pinfall in 11 minutes, 39 seconds after he hits a Death Valley driver. Matt, what do you think of co-promoter Matt Stryker here taking on a guy who's been pretty over in his little comeback tour to the Indies, Justin Credible? All right, well, so... So I thought it was an interesting matchup, like right off the bat, like before I like had any recollection of what the match itself was. It's an interesting choice to put these two guys together in any circumstance. Um, Credible got a pretty good pop coming out. Again, nothing super remarkable, but pretty good. Um, but then he decided to go full heel. Like he, he's obviously getting these babyface, you know, welcome home reactions everywhere. But I guess because he was against the quote hometown hero, he decided to go full heel and. Um, so he does these like corner breaking, like he gets smacked, and then he goes out of the ring. He goes into the aisle and grabs that corded mic, and he's like, "I didn't come here to be disrespected by you people." And I'm not totally sure what the disrespect was, but I uh, he called the ref a piece of shit. Like he was like went full on heel, <laughs> and then he just was like, "I'm out of here," and he walked behind the curtain. And Stryker followed him back, and it was like this very super like indie shtick, where he's just like, I'm a bad guy, and I don't like you fans, and I'm out of here. And so Stryker came, went back, and he defended the fans. He's like, you're not going to get out get away like that. And so they start fighting behind the bleachers. They fight in the crowd. Um, and, uh, you know, there's, there's blading involved. And it was just like, it was obviously like, they were going for something different. And it definitely was something I did not expect from this match. I will say that. Then, back in the ring, Justin Credible um, grabs a chin lock. And while in that chin lock, Gabe chooses to say that Credible has not lost a step. In fact, he's gained a step, and this is a great match. <laughs> and I was like, I mean, okay, that's, that's interesting timing. Or are you being ironic? Um, so a striker went for the fiery comeback, but the crowd didn't totally go for it. He wasn't totally being treated like uh, the hometown hero that he was supposed to be. You know, and then they, they, they went to a little bit more of a conventional match. Um, you know, they got, you know, they, uh, uh, Credible hit a That's Incredible, and I guess Gabe didn't like the way it looked, and neither did the wrestlers, because he said he didn't connect, he didn't get all of it, and Matt Stryker kicked out at one of the That's Incredible. So either everyone just agreed that the move wasn't good. I mean, obviously, 
Stryker was was supposed to win, so I guess he was supposed to kick out. But I don't know if everyone just agreed that the move wasn't good, so he was going to kick out at one, or they decided they were going to make Matt Stryker the Hulk Hogan of Ring of Honor, and <laughs> because he kicked out at one, um, they uh, Credible tried to reverse a Death Valley Driver into a crucifix, but Stryker like held back on and got back into the Death Valley Driver position and hit it for three. And Gabe said, "We're seeing a superstar in the making here," and it's like that's. <laughs> That, even even for Gabe, that's over the top. Um, and I appreciate that they tried something different. I don't think it totally worked. Um, it wasn't terrible. I don't think it was really bad or anything, but it was unique and odd, and like it was a weird match. Uh, but I don't think you have to watch it. Yeah, it was. I I wrote in my notes actually. I think that this is a match where. I thought it was a little bit above average just for the novelty that you see so little in Ring of Honor during this period that's like this match. I think without doing a podcast where you're watching every Ring of Honor show, that novelty goes away. This is probably a match that's you'd probably just go, eh, why did I watch that? It is different because, first off, like I, both guys kind of have to play against what they've been doing in Ring of Honor. This is like a freaky Friday match where... Credible's been get, getting these huge babyface reactions in so many markets, and as you said, he goes full-blown heel here. And not only does he go full-blown heel, he does like all these old-school heel tactics that you don't see anyone do in Ring of Honor. Like, yeah, it's like sticky heel. Exactly, like like old-school Southern heel. He fakes that he got hit in the cor- cheap shot in the corner, and then when the ref isn't looking, he cheap shots Matt Stryker. He uh, shoves the ref, and then the chef the ref shoves him back. Um, you know, he, like you said, he bails and goes to the back and, you know, like the fans don't deserve to see me and striker has to go get him. So a lot of like really basic old school heel stuff, even like later in the match, I actually like when wrestlers do this, the crowd has not chanted for Matt striker in a while. So he does the old, aha, you're not chanting for Matt anymore. And of course, then they chant like that. Just a, a very simple heel move where you're basically saying, Hey, cheer for the baby face, please. Yeah. And so, so actually, again, that stuff was a novelty for me because no one is really doing that in Ring of Honor at this point, that kind of stuff. But as a whole, yeah, just... And the way Matt Stryker play, is playing things, it's funny because here he is in his hometown or home area, whatever, a show he really apparently helped promote, and it is the least Matt Stryker match he's had in Ring of Honor. Like, it's completely against what he likes to do. There is almost no Matt wrestling in this match. They brawl in the crowd. Like, it, it's it's not what I would imagine Matt Stryker wants to represent himself to be. Like, it's certainly not what he spent most of his Ring of Honor career wrestling like. So I felt a little weird for him in that sense. And it's not that he did anything bad, but I felt like watching this match, literally almost anyone else could have wrestled the same match against Just Incredible. Like, this felt of, like a very Just Incredible match with insert the baby face, insert, you know, local baby face here. Yeah, I agree. And, and so, again, I felt like, as weird as this to say, I felt like Matt Stryker deserved a little better opportunity given what he did for the show, apparently, and the fact that it was his hometown area. Like, he does get the win, and Just Incredible did have name value, but... Also, he, he, was, a su- also, he was a superstar in the making here. <laughs> and this match doesn't really let you show what he does best, or, like, who he is, really. Like, this would be, like, when you bought an album because you heard one single that you liked, and then it's one of those bands where no other song on the album sounds like the single. 
Like if you watch this and thought, man, I love I love Matt Stryker and his crowd brawling and stuff like that, <laughs> and just how he all action. And then you watched any other Matt Stryker match, you'd be like, what? Uh, I was sold a bill of goods here. Um, the ending wasn't bad where he does the Death Valley Driver. He tries to hit it. I think it's the fourth attempt in a short order at the end that actually hits. And it almost just ha- how he kept going back to it over and over in such a short span of time. Part of me thought it was cool, and part of me felt like I was watching myself play a wrestling video game where I just get frustrated and keep pressing the finisher button over and over again until it finally lands. Like, just, I want to hit it. I want to see it. Like, because he just kept going for it. Not a bad bad strategy at those games, by the way. (laughs) No, no, definitely. Like, once it hits that seventh time, you you can finally get the pin. Yeah. Um... Yeah, and the crowd was behind Stryker with chants. They did chant just an asshole and fuck him up, Stryker, fuck him up. But there were also times where they were quiet. I felt like the crowd was starting to kind of burn out a little bit by this point in the show. Like, they would pop for things, but they weren't consistently loud after the first few matches. Right. It's like, when there was a spot, they would react. When there wasn't a spot, they would just kind of be quiet. And the Jim, Jim, it, Jim Cornette's nightmare of a crowd, as a matter of fact, when you think about it. <laughs> Yeah, the, the original Spot Monkey crowd here in Dayton, yeah. Ohio. Yeah. Um, yeah, so otherwise, it's intermission at this point, uh, and we're outside the building with Les Thatcher, replacing Gary Michael Capetta on this night. Les is wearing glasses that make his eyes look twice as big as they actually are, uh, like big Coke bottle glasses, I noticed for some reason. And the prophecy is with him, with Jim Cornette. Christopher Daniels says he's hunting for the world title, but he hasn't forgotten about the tag titles and says the prophecy made those titles famous and important. Uh, no, you didn't, but you tried. <laughs> they, are, uh, they are still not famous or important. Yeah, they wouldn't be for quite a little bit. Um, yeah. Daniels throws it over to Jim Cornette, who says he's known Daniels for a long time, and he, then he goes and he puts over each member of the prophecy individually, and then he, when he gets to Alice in Danger, he's had his arm around her the whole time. And he says when he go when he goes to Ring of Honor, he calls Allison beautiful and says when he comes to Ring of Honor, he wants to be, quote, in danger. <laughs> and I just wrote you, period. And yeah, <laughs> uh, you. Uh, Cornet ends by telling Moth that he is fabulous, but he needs to get rid of the interloper, Les Thatcher. I like the use of that word because they've got to talk. Dan Moff just screams at Les until he walks away. And then the camera keeps rolling, and in a low voice, Cornette asks the prophecy if they remember how Tully and Arn beat the Rock and Roll Express for the tag titles in 1987. And Christopher Daniels, I don't know if he was supposed to do this, is like, yeah, I remember. Yeah. And then, and then <laughs> Cornette's just like, I'm happy to show you guys because I have an idea. So they, were gonna, they, they, went, they were supposed to go back and like, I think like he made it sound like they were going to go watch the tape. Yeah, I, I, the way he set that up, I thought it was supposed to be like, they were supposed to say, like, no, Jim. And he's like, well, let me show you something. But I don't wonder if Daniels went into business for himself because he was like, yeah, I remember. Yeah. Like, I definitely remember how you did that. Yeah. Um, so we'll see in a little bit this amazingly creative plan that <laughs> has that he had to tell in secret. Um, then we're elsewhere in the back with Colt Cabana a steal. They're talking to the camera held by, quote, unquote, Lucy again. They celebrate their win. They ask Lucy if she's found any news, and a squeaky fake voice just goes, no. <laughs> um, now that was corny. <laughs> Colt and Chris, the future, Colt sees Chris the, save him backstage, and I'll note, 
His nickname was the future. So he go, uh, Cole goes, if you're the future, how many chicks is out? Am I going to hook up with tonight? And I think everybody before even, um, before even hearing what the punchline was, can guess the punchline that Saban is going to tell Cabana. Yeah, Saban just like not in the mood for Colt shenanigans. But he's just like, I don't know, zero. Yeah. And Colt's not happy with this. Uh, Colt asks Saban if he knows what the Field of Honor tournament is, and Saban says that he doesn't know what to tell Colt, just that he's been invited to it. Colt is pissed he hasn't been invited, flips Saban the bird, and goes off with Ace on a quest to find Rob Feinstein. I love that Colt does not know anything about the Field of Honor tournament, but he's very mad he's not part of it. Yeah. Like, I actually that, do. I actually do like that. Yeah, that, that's like there's an old psychological study where... Apparently, if you um, have people line up for no reason, just form a line somewhere, people that aren't in on the study will, like, join the line without knowing what the line is for, just because they assume if there's a line, there's got to be something good. It's like the Stonecutters episode of The Simpsons. Yeah, it, it, this is like the Field of Honor is, is the Stonecutters episode of The Simpsons. It, I, am go- I am going to stalk Lenny and Carl. Don't. <laughs> <laughs> like this, like no one knows what this is, but people are in it. They want to be in it. They're excited for it. It's just it because it exists. They're they're ready for it. Um, Julia smokes. He knows. <laughs> Oliver knows. <laughs> Oliver knows. <laughs> now that's a, that's a throwback line. Yeah, the creator of TMM Seven knows if Randy Savage did something with um. Uh, Stephanie McMahon. That is the weirdest thing ever. That's the only, um, apparently, the only person that knows. He needed to know that to create an accurate, accurate simulation of the wrestling business. It's true. Um, <laughs> cut to the prophecy. They're running. Um, wait, while Red's backstage, it looks like at a table doing maybe an autograph signing or a meet and greet at intermission with fans along with the SAT. And the prophecy run up to him and attack him. Daniel's like outright body slams Red into a door. He hits his injured knee with a chair shot. Cornette hits an SAT member with a tennis racket. Uh, the the prophecy tossed the SAT out of the building, which is kind of funny because the SAT are back in the building like one minute later in this segment. So yeah. it's like great plan, guys. <laughs> um, yeah, well, they would just go around to the front and be like, "We're you know we're wrestlers. Like we can we, we come back in?" And the guy, the probably the security, is like, uh, "Yeah." Like, <laughs> <laughs> Cornette calls Red a crippled midget. Between him calling, like, telling Dunn and Marcos he's taking pills better, bigger than them, and this, like, Jim Cornette had that very Vince McMahon te- mentality in 2003 because he doesn't like small people. Uh, the prophecy celebrate in front of a ton of the fans there before they leave. And then this is the point I, I wrote in my notes t- t- talking to myself, like, I love that this was the ingenious plan that only Jim Cornette could think of attack the wrestlers so he before their match like <laughs> this is the thing he had to tell them in secret that he that was connected to a specific match in 1987 because <laughs> it's never been done between now and then it's just attack a guy before the match can i um, can i say another funny thing about this yeah so yeah. we've all complained about the uh the spoilerific video packages before some of these roh events on the original dvd packaging for this show on the back of the dvd that lists the matches one of the things it lists is the prophecy attack the amazing red during intermission. <laughs> like, how is that even a selling point? Like, no. is someone going to see that at the merch table and go, oh, there's going to be a, an attack backstage, you say? During the intermission? 
like, well, I was going to buy, you know, Joe versus Kabashi, but, you know, this has completely swayed me. This is what I'm spending my $15 on. This one even has action in during the intermission. <laughs> um, we hear people shouting, you know, get rid of doctor, get rid of doctor. The SAT come back in. They check on Red. The crowd chants SAT. So kind of stealing Red's moment for a second. Um, AJ finally makes his way to the back and helps out as well. And then finally, Rob Feinstein comes back and asks what happened. So, AJ, you did not watch after Red. The SAT had one thing to ask you, just one thing to look after. You couldn't do that. And Dave Meltzer wrote in The Observer, Red's knee is shot and hasn't been able to perform up to nearly his capabilities, and they wanted to give him the, the night off. Red won't get the knee checked, probably because he knows there's a good chance he'll need surgery. So, Oh, that, is, that, that is so bad. <laughs> Yeah, I love the mindset of, if I don't get it checked and don't know how bad it is, maybe I can pretend. Um, that is a lot of people's mentalities about going to the doctor, by the way. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I have to admit, I've done that in the past. It's not a mature thing. Like, you're scared about something, so you're just like, well, I'll give it another day and hope that it gets better on its own. But, yeah, yeah for anyone that's listening, that's not, that's not good advice. If something's bothering you, go to a doctor. Um, I looked up, I, I forget, I didn't have enough time to do the research on this little point, but I forget if Red actually got knee surgery or not. Uh, looking up cage match, cage match does not catch every match at this time, but it had him after this going to one match in, um, all Japan. And then he does, they don't have another listed match for him until at our, I think like at least in ring of honor till at our best. Yeah. I think that's his return. So is in, I mean, is in March of twenty two thousand March in two thousand four. So what you know, however he handled his knee thing, it did keep him out of Ring of Honor for a long time. And then of course he comes right back before the Feinstein scandal, which necess- necessitates him getting pulled by TNA. So kind of like the last we've seen like the last of Red in a big way in Ring of Honor, really already. Doesn't he come back very briefly, like many 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 years later? Probably, yeah. Like it's just. It's weird to think that Red was such, like, people remember him so vividly from stuff he did in the first year, but it's, like, he's already done, really, for, yeah. like... He is. He has one... intensive purposes. Yeah, he has, that, he has one match back after this, and then he's gone. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's wild. And speaking of guys who um, are leaving Ring of Honor, we have our next match, which is a four-corner survival match. Michael Shane defeats Hot Stuff Hernandez, Scoot Andrews, and Slick Wagner Brown with April Hunter escorting him to the ring in 16 minutes, 32 seconds, when Shane pins Scoot Andrews after he hits a swinging fisherman's buster DDT. Basically, like uh, he picks him up like almost like a fisherman's buster. He hooks the leg, and then he just kind of swings him around and then drops him, except clearly it would look cool, except Scoot's head nowhere got close to the mat so but yeah this is an interesting match in the sense of um we hadn't seen scoot in a long time michael shane was already on his way out and this would turn out to be both of their last matches in ring of honor and kind of a just a a weird like not notable end for them um at one point on commentary gabe says this is this is something that that really cheesed me off, Matt. Uh, Gabe's, you know, last show, Death Before Dishonor, we talked about how 
probably to the match's detriment, Gabe really sold it like, Paul London's done a lot in Ring of Honor, but he's done nothing if he doesn't win the title tonight. His career's worth, here's worth nothing. On this match with Michael Shane, Gabe says that Michael Shane has, quote, has done, quote, almost, no, let me just quote it right. Um, he's, quote, done it almost all, unquote, in Ring of Honor. And the idea that he was selling <laughs> Paul London, that, like, Paul London, if he doesn't win the title, nothing means anything. And then Michael Shane's like, well, he's done almost everything here. Yeah. Is just <laughs> such a head scratcher. Um, this was, again, like the story of the show, it was average. It, this, this felt completely unnecessary. Like, it, it was not, we just saw one of the best four ways in Ring of Honor history on the last show. It's safe to say this was not one of the best four ways in Ring of Honor history. Uh, it just felt like guys filling time most of the way. Like, it got a little bit hotter at the end, but it didn't feel like they even had, like, really thought a lot of intricate stuff out during the match. It was just like, well, we got 16 minutes to fill. Let's go out there and think of stuff on the fly, which sometimes it makes for great wrestling. But for this, it just felt like we're filling the time. Um, yeah. Um, these guys, they just weren't feeling it. And so much of the match was uh, the announcers talking about the uh, the um, the field of honor and the prophecy and like all this stuff. So it really not was sin- not since the first anniversary show of Scramble main event have the commentators in Ring of Honor spent so much time during a match talking about everything but the match. Yeah, I mean that just tells you everything you need to know right there. And as a home viewer, as far as how much you need to care about the match. And I didn't really care. And, you know, it's weird. It feel, I feel bad because Hernandez had had a lot of momentum going into this, right? Like, yeah. And so his stuff still looked pretty good, although he was definitely much more methodical here. But, you know, everyone was working at a slower-than-normal pace. Um, what I did find interesting is, if you remember Scoot Andrews, when he was first in ROH, he'd wrestle Xavier a lot. I think he wrestled uh, uh, James Maritato. He had three ways with them. And all of his matches were very, like, rushed and short, and, like, you really didn't see much of what Scoot Andrews can do. Not that he was impressed here, but he actually got, worked a much more normally-paced match here, and I felt like it was the first chance that he actually got to wrestle anywhere close to him, like, like he normally does since coming to ROH. I don't know if, like, that may... if that sounds true to you also. I, I mean, he got more he got more time here in this match and he was kind of in some ways the glue of the match. I would say yeah. it's also funny that he, uh, you know, he had the really weird hairstyle in 2002 and Gabe never mentioned it. I don't think. And then, or I guess whoever the announcers were during his early run into in ring of honor, but here he's bald. He looks a hundred times better. And Gabe kind of was like jokingly like mentioning how bald Scoot Andrews is a couple times during this match. It's like, he looks completely normal and a hundred times better now. Yes. Um, a lot of the match was people working over Brown. Um, you know, this was Brown's debut with, on a, like a main card ROH show. They, 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 they were working on uh, the chin lock. Uh, they, were, they, were, you know, like they were tagging in and out, working on Brown. Um, Gabe made a gross comment about wanting to grab, uh, grab April Hunter's boobs, which is... You know, at this point, it's like, and we'll see later, this is clearly just an intentional shtick by Gabe. Like, he's going to be the perv on purpose. I don't know what purpose it serves, but he seems to be committed to that character. Uh, you have to ask him why. 
Boy, uh, does she have some tatas on her. I just want to reach out and never mind. <laughs> is, is, is the quote. The second grossest thing he says on commentary tonight, oddly enough. Um, but, yeah, like they, they have a slugfest between Shane and Andrews, which has got to be the least exciting slugfest in ROH history. <laughs> <laughs> like, no offense to those guys, but like just where they're positioned, you know what I mean? Um, but so... Andrews went for like a DDT flatliner combo on Shane and Hernandez, but he, uh, but he holds them for a long time to wait for Brown to come off the second rope with a leg drop to Hernandez while Andrews does the move. So that was like ill-timed, convoluted. I yeah, appreci- it, looks, yeah. it looks so terrible. Yeah, I appreciate the thought behind it, but a scramble match, this is not. Um, so uh, Brown missed the moonsault. Shane went for a roll-up, but Hernandez kicked out, and Shane went to the floor onto Andrews, and then they did some floor stuff like acai moonsault onto Shane and Andrews. Hernandez did his big plancha onto all three, and the crowd loved that. Um, so then Hernandez does the, he did the, the border toss on Brown. Shane top rope drop kicked him. Shane escaped the border toss, super kicked Hernandez. Um, and then, so then Slick, he messes up a shooting star press. Like, I don't even totally know what happened there. But he did the, for those who don't, who don't, don't see the show, which will probably be a lot of you. He did the, uh, I best describe it's the Kurt Angle, Brock Lesnar, WrestleMania match where he does the shooting star press and he just doesn't rotate enough. It looks like he comes down on his head. I think what it is, if you watch that is there was like, I think there was like a pinfall. The other two guys in the match were doing a pinfall right close to the guy he was landing on. So I th- I feel like Slick Wagner Brown maybe felt like he had not enough room and then just did not rotate up for fear that he'd be going out too far. But instead, he just kills himself. Yeah. So then, then after that, uh, Scoot hit the force of nature on Brown. Shane broke it up, hit a fisherman's DDT on Andrews and got the win. Um did not expect Shane to win a match. Uh, I really did not expect that. I felt like, obviously, Hernandez was the only guy who should win a match here, but he didn't. Shane did. Um, and so there were some big spots there, but it was mostly boring. And uh, and then by the end, it was kind of a mess. I, uh, I thought it had got way too much time considering the interest that it had. It was weird positioning, weird that the match existed, but it did. And I thought it brought down the show a pretty decent amount, despite the hard work of the wrestlers. I almost felt bad for Slick Wagner Brown watching this because, um, I mean, then I just reminded myself that April Hunter years later would accuse him of like a horrific level of assault. So then I didn't feel so bad for him. But when you watch this match, he is trying to go to, he's, he's a fairly big guy and he's trying to fly whenever he can. He does a moonsault and he hits the guardrail. He tries the shooting star press. He does that spot you described where, Poor um, Scoot has to wait forever for him to climb the ropes. And then the move uh, Brown does doesn't look good at all. But he was trying to do all these flying things and, you know, some pretty dangerous things. And then the problem is he's in the match with Hernandez, who's a bigger guy. And all Hernandez has to do is that one dive to the outside. And it gets a bigger reaction than any of the eight billion flying moves Brown was trying. That's a good point. Yeah, it's like they're both kind of trying to be that big, strong guy who can do agile stuff, and it's just he's you know there, there's a guy in the match that can top him, so he it, he it, he's kind of wasted in that sense. And yeah, Hernandez keeps showing me flashes where he does like a really cool spinning like back kick for a guy his size. He still does the big dive to the outside, and in this match, 
it's it's like he's such a hot and cold guy where there are times uh, spots you can see and you go man this guy could be a star and then there are times where he just is blown up and walking around huffing and puffing and he just looks like a guy like it's it's night and day with him what you get yes well i would never actually say that hot stuff fernandez just looks like a guy but i get what you're saying (laughs) Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, not maybe not like a guy, but there's definitely times where you feel like he has something special, and then times where you, there are times where we, no, this is the best way for me to put it. I think there are times where you watch him and you go, "How did this guy not become a star?" And then later in a match of his, you'll go, "Oh, that's why he didn't become a star." Like right. in the same match, you'll go back and forth like that. I agree, and he's an interesting guy to watch in that sense. But um, going on, let me just see here. Oh, yeah, there was a couple commentary spots. There was a... Gay broke the news. One of the million things they talked about that wasn't the match during the match was breaking news from the back. You know, Ring of Honor officials are so mad at the prophecy for their sneak attack tonight on Red that they're making Daniels wrestle Xavier for the number (laughs) one contenders trophy. And I wrote, seems like a reward. Yeah. (laughs) Like, we are so mad. You're going to have to face a stable mate. For a really good reward, like well, okay, you, you you showed me. Um, you, you mean I have the thing I want if I win a wrestling match? Okay. Um, also, never yeah. really, never really seemed like Daniels and Xavier were ever that close, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they were trying in that one Death Before Dishonor. They were trying to show the idea that like, oh, Daniels didn't know Xavier was coming back. Like they're not on the same page anymore. Right. And. Um, they also, Gabe and Doug, again, wonder why wrestlers know about the Field of Honor and they don't. And uh, they muse that maybe those wrestlers talk to Rob Feinstein, and Gabe and Doug say they try never to talk to Rob. <laughs> so that was like another cute little joke. But it's also, it again just slams home the point of how crazy this thing was where Gabe tried to sell the Field of Honor. He teased it for show after show after show as this mystery thing that half the people don't know what it is. Ring of Honor, for some reason, isn't telling people what it is. And all it turns out to be is a round-robin tournament for mid-carters. And here's the thing. The Observer, without saying that it was going to be called the Field of Honor, basically described that Ring of Honor was going to do it months ago. Like, a few episodes back, Dave said, like, Ring of Honor's planning a Champions Carnival style round robin tournament for mid carters, and he named a bunch of the guys that would be in it. Like, yeah, this it's the, not a secret. I will say, probably the Field of Honor like teases played a little better before we knew that it was not interesting at all. <laughs> you know, like with years of retrospect, we know that it turned out to not be anything interesting. Um, actually, one of the least interesting things about ROH that whole year. So that kind of mitigates how exciting we sh- we we could be about the mystery of it. You know. Shane Hagedorn on the on um, an honorable mention actually said they made a Field of Honor DVD but decided not to produce it and they even joke like oh what would have that sold like ten copies to Matt Stryker yeah uh, like uh, the idea that they even went to the trouble of like putting the matches together in a file or whatever boggles my mind that they even considered for a second like maybe we should make a field of honor compilation i'm very i'm looking very forward to finding out like what the best field of honor match was because you know it's mostly famous for not having good matches yeah um speaking of the field of honor the next match on the show was an invitation to field of honor match we'll be getting that on this show and the next one at least and this is jimmy J wins his way into the field of honor defeating Slim J via submission in 8 minutes, 55 seconds, with his fres- from dusk till dawn, you know, spinning into a crossface. Matt, how do you think this, I mean, 
we heard months ago Ring of Honor, I mean, the Observer said, you know, Ring of Honor saw big things for Slim J. I mean, here he is now losing to Jimmy Rave in nine minutes. What did you think about this as an invitation to the Field of Honor? Well, one, it had another funny line about, like, the announcer speculating about the Field of Honor, into which word they say, I guess it's a thing where stars will be born. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, like, outer space, I guess. Um, I, again, I just... <laughs> I don't get how I would love to know what Gabe's mindset was as selling this over and over again, show after show of we don't know what this is. Like it's it, it's the greatest mystery, you know. Not since the pyramids have people wondered about something. Like it's just it's bizarre that he chose to sell it this way. Yeah, it is bizarre. Um, as far as the match, uh, I wouldn't quite say it's bizarre, but. You know, it's you see, you see, really see how green Slim J is. Like he does some cool moves, but man, are his transitions non-existent. Um, the highlight for me of the match was when Gabe almost called him Slimmy Rave, but he uh, <laughs> he saved himself on that one. But um, yeah, I mean, and also just when he uh, tried to dist- when Slim tried to distract the ref by yelling "Look, hookers!" so he could low blow <laughs> Rave. But yeah, that was cute. Yeah, it was just some, you know, a bunch of moves. Uh, Slim hit a cradle DDT on Rave. He did a sitting Hangman's Neckbreaker, which is definitely a cool move. You don't see it pretty much at all. Um, they did, you know, a series of reversals into a um, into a crossface, and Slim J tapped. It was a pretty short match. I don't really think that anything too noteworthy happened there. A Rave, again, got his running knee called the Shining Wizard by Gabe. Uh, it'll be interesting to see when he finally stops calling it that. Uh, yeah, well, another one of those things is. where it's like, when is the moment? When is the moment when we will break out of this pattern? But, yeah, it was just a bunch of moves, I thought. I don't know. I, uh, I, um, I don't think that either guy really impressed with the match. I mean, I thought it was fine. I thought the moves were cool, but like you said, there wasn't really much between the moves. Like, this was a match where the pace was a little bit slower. Like, there was a little bit more time between a lot of the moves than in an average Ring of Honor match, but they didn't feel that, fill that time with anything. Like, normally, I, I like matches that, that relax the pace a bit, and they fill that time with selling and storytelling and things like that. This was just like... M- more space between the moves. There wasn't anything. They didn't use that time, that that pace to their advantage. That classic, but, that classic like uh, critique of some of those old ECW matches. Spot rest, spot rest. Like that's sort of how it yeah. felt. Yeah, you know, spot rest, spot rest, spot. Set up like two tables for five minutes. Spot, yeah, you know, yeah, exactly. And you know, Slim J showed that little bit of charisma with the look hookers line. Uh, you know, Jimmy Rave hadn't found that. When we talk about wrestlers that haven't found that piece, we know they get. Jimmy Rave d- has not gotten that that charisma he would get with the the embassy storyline and gimmick. Um, again, during the commentary of this match, Gabe goes about the field of honor. We guess it's a tournament. We guess like th- th- at some point it starts making the announcers look bad. <laughs> Like, yeah. that's in so many shows, and you don't know what this is. Um, yeah, Rave didn't show... It, it, it was fine as a match, it just, but it wasn't even, like you said, it was just too much space between the moves. It, it, I guess it is worth noting, Slim J, I think, is only 33 now. So he was only like 18 or 19. So, 
I almost feel like I, I know some people that really love follow the Southern Indies really like Slim J now, and he still wrestles regularly there. I would have liked to have seen like apparently, obviously, Ring of Honor saw something in him with that Observer story months earlier. Maybe Slim J was a guy who could have used a shot when he was like twenty four and not a teenager. But yeah, I mean, I'm sure he was very impressive for his age. But when you got the Briscoes right there, you know, it's like or even Shelley and Jacobs were like twenty or twenty one or whatever. Yeah. You know, and Mark Briscoe at like seventeen was amazing. So you, I mean, the stand, the, the bar is set high. Yeah. And next, though, we get the Ring of Honor world title match, Samoa Joe. Oh, by, by the way, before I continue, wasn't Brian Danielson only like 22 at this time also? I mean, something. I mean, so yeah. many of those guys were younger than you remembered. Yeah. Yeah. Samoa Joe in the world Ring of Honor world title match defends successfully. He defeats BJ Whitmer via pinfall in 12 minutes, 44 seconds with an arms captured German suplex. I felt like this was a good match. You know, it was one of the best matches on the show, but I also felt like it was disappointing. This was another match where I felt like BJ Whitmer, you know, he did that promo where he, he grew up 10 minutes away. So he's kind of like a hometown boy and it's the semi main event and it's a world title match against Samoa Joe, who you think would be like a perfect fit for what BJ likes to do in wrestling. And it's just good. Like it's, it's not a star making performance. And in fact, the crowd, I think, is more into Joe than BJ, even though BJ's the hometown guy. And it, it's, it, it, I would say it's halfway between, like, it, it's not, it doesn't feel like a main event to me level match, but it doesn't feel like just a mid-card match either. It, they give more effort than a mid-card match, but it just doesn't feel like you were expecting, or right, on a show like this where the card's wide open for someone to really, like, steal the show. I really would have expected BJ Whitmer to go out there and get and give more. And he just found I me mean, like he and Joe hit each other really hard. They do most of their big stuff. They brawl on the outside and Joe does the Olay kick. I liked at the near the end when um, Joe's going to throw a big strike, like a forearm or something. And he winds up a little big so that BJ can duck under it and hit a big exploder that drops Joe, you know, at a nasty angle and the crowd really reacted big to that and really popped for that near fall. But for most of the, again, it, it, it's good. It's a good match. It's one of the best matches on the show, but says something about the show where one of the best matches, it's just like, yeah, that was about, that was acceptable for what my, on the low end of what I was hoping. Yeah. So I kind of agree with your assessment of the match overall, which was that it was like, it wasn't a star-making performance for by, by Whitmer, but I also have a complete opposite take as far as how it affected my expectations because I thought this match wasn't disappointing at all. I thought it was better than I expected. Um, you know, I didn't expect this to be some like special match, but I thought it was the best match on the show because it was like the only match that really brought that ROH uniqueness where it's like the crowd could have said, okay, we saw something different here. We saw something really different that we didn't see on TV because Joe brought his style to it. His, and he's really getting his like style of title match down where it's all about like, I'm going to exchange big strikes with a guy and just do some moves where everyone, where, where the crowd goes, holy crap about how if I hit somebody, you know, they, they start with the slap fight and Whitmer takes off his nose guard early and, you know, Joe keeps getting the better of him and Whitmer will eventually, will every, every once in a while hit like a big suplex or like do an exploder right on top of Joe's head, like just like crazy stuff. And it's just like, 
it just plays off of Joe's uniqueness in a really entertaining way. Um, the crowd definitely did not buy Whitmer as a challenger, like that's for sure, and that took the match down. I also thought the that the ending was a little anticlimactic, although you know, like he did the three suplexes, like he did the German suplex, then the dragon suplex, and the cross arm, but he didn't get up to the point where he was doing it like as a rolling suplex yet. He just did them separately. Um, it was still cool, but it wasn't as effective as when he got to the point where he did them as rolling suplexes. I guess he actually did do its rolling um, in the match with the Zebra Kid, which we did not review, but um, but not uh, not in this one. So I thought that took it down a little bit, but I still thought the match was pretty good, and I wasn't expecting much from it. So I actually liked it more than I expected. See, I was kind of hoping this would be like a hidden gem. Because on paper, having you know watched every show again, rewatched from the beginning, I didn't remember what the, I don't even know if I ever watched this show. But I was just thinking, you know, these. If, if I thought to myself, looking at this, if BJ was ever going to have like a really great non-Jimmy Jacobs match, this should be the time and the setting for it. And you know, it's again, it's not, it's not bad. It's and it's just, and and I will, I do think you made a good point about like the stiffness and how that could really get over to the crowd because I think again, Shane Hagedorn in an honorable mention podcast, he talked about one of the things he really noticed like as watching ring of honor live for the first time is like the welts forming from how hard they were hitting each other. And I could imagine like that's something that ring of honor was providing that maybe your local indie wasn't like just two guys who are willing to really just hit the hell out of each other. And the sound, like the sound of the, I mean, that's, it's really noticeable live. I mean, it's noticeable on the DVD too, but the way it echoes live, just the sound of like, just guys like smacking each other. It's, uh, it's, it's memorable. And I think this match probably was memorable for the people that were there because of that. And, oh, and like you mentioned earlier, I should have mentioned, uh, BJ starts the match wearing a no a big a big face protector. I guess uh, I don't know if this is just storyline or not, but Gabe says it's because Homicide broke his nose at Death Before Dishonor. But he takes it off pretty early in the match, right before he gets into a open hand slap battle with Joe, which is like the worst time you could take it off. I guess. Well, but, I think that was like sort of the point, right? Like he was yeah. like, "I'm going to take it off to show that I'm I'm going to put myself in danger." And stand toe to toe with this guy. Um, the uh, one thing that was really interesting to me watching this with the last few Joe matches is, you know, the choke he brought out a bunch of shows ago, and he's done it a couple times at least. And he's talked about that he knew it would take some time to get that over as a finisher to the crowd, and like the muscle buster would become a regular finisher for him. But in lately, like he's been winning matches. Like you see, the last match he won against uh. He won against Dan Moff with, I think, a, a dragon suplex. And here he wins with the arms captured German suplex. It's interesting that Joe's kind of like, if you watch 2003 Joe, at least the first half, he's like putting a lot of variation into his finisher, which is crazy because you would think he'd want to establish one. And he also has the island driver, you know, where you would think uh, most wrestlers, they want one or two established finishers. And he's kind of right now has at this point, five or six moves he can hit as the finisher. Has he ever won with the Island Driver? I can't quite recall. I think he might coming up. I'm not sure, but I don't know if he's won. That might have been more of a 0-1 thing that he won with. I don't know, but like he definitely has a... like The Island Driver in Ring of Honor is something he doesn't pull pull out all the time. It's right. something that's an occasional thing. So right. 
Joe's interesting in that sense where like you would think, oh, once Joe in, like starts doing the muscle buster, I'm going to see it on every match. Or, oh, once Joe sees the choke, he's going to go out for every match. And it's like going back and rewatching this stuff, like, no, that's not how it started. He would like do bring up these ideas, but not immediately go back to them. Yeah, I mean, I guess it was kind of cool in a way that you could get over the fact that, you know, once, you know, and I think the DVDs were pretty delayed at this point. So, you know, we'll see, like, when the crowd starts catching up to the fact that all these different Joe moves can end the match. Yeah. Um, another point in the match I thought was interesting was when BJ starts his comeback, he hits, I thought, a great super kick. But then his next move is to go to the top, and you go, man, BJ Whitmer doesn't go to the top very often. And he hits a really weak-looking top rope forearm to the back of Joe's head, which looked awkward and kind of got, like, silence from the crowd. I felt bad. Again, I thought at this point late in the show, this match I really noticed, but I noticed this on the last match too, the crowd, especially for the last match probably, but this match too, they would be quiet between spots, but then when a spot happened, they would cheer and often even clap like a Japanese audience. Like they would literally just react for the spots. I know we mentioned that before, but I really started noticing it here, and I don't know if they just started to burn out or or what, but... It's a, it's a very different crowd in some ways than what I've seen on recent Ring of Honor shows. I've definitely been in ROH crowds that were like that. It's it's weird. Like you, you just never knew what kind of crowd you were going to get. Yeah, it, it just maybe they weren't. Maybe they hadn't paced themselves being the first Ring of Honor show in Ohio. They weren't ready for it. But yeah. Um, next we have we go back to Cabana and Ace backstage. They are again looking for Rob Feinstein. They ask a very young, cute little boy. If he's seen Rob Feinstein, and the boy goes, no, not yet, sir, Um, Colt pinches his cheek. Uh, uh, Matt, do you want to say something about this? No. No, I definitely don't want to say anything. (laughs) Uh, uh. You you heard it. Uh, It's on Trevor's uh, Twitter. Just you can can draw your own conclusions. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, Colt pinches the kid's cheek. He's like, oh, he's so cute. They move on to Nigel McGinnis, who, as always in these backstage segments, is like three feet away. Um, He's on his cell phone. Nigel doesn't know where Rob is either. Colt speaks very slowly at this point, acting like Nigel doesn't know English. Um, Ace says this is just like the movie Snatch. I don't don't totally get the reference. That's a movie like... uh, Guy Ritchie directed movie where yep. they speak in very thick British accent. Okay, because I know I know the movie, but not not well enough to know what the what he's uh, referring to. But okay, yeah, because but then the way Nigel responded was almost like because I guess he was like Cabana was treating him like he was deaf, so like Nigel did this like quote unquote like mocking deaf person voice and like did a little like almost sign language esque stuff. It is the sort of humor that does not hold up well at all in 2018 and was pretty mean-spirited. I mean, I don't think he meant it mean-spirited, but it comes off as mean-spirited probably even in 2003. Don't mock people's handicaps. It's not just just not a thing. Unless you're the president of the United States. It's just not something that people do. <laughs> it's cool. Yeah. Um, Colt and Ace then walk by the Ring Crew Express. Ace just starts saying nerds, like Revenge of the Nerds. Um <laughs> Colt and Ace call down the uh, Ring Crew Express, but Colt starts losing the thread. Like he starts like not being able to string his thoughts together, and then he just shouts "Second City Saints rule" and walks away. So yeah, it was it was something like um, 
Oh yeah, they they mentioned like something about the field of honor. It's like the only field that you're gonna have is a force field because everyone's gonna make fun of you, and you're because then you need a force field to protect yourselves. And then and then he goes Second City Saints rule and walks away, and everyone's looking at him like he has three heads, including Ace. I actually thought this was a pretty effective comedy segment overall. I, I feel like the Second City Saints characters. They, I mean, I, what I really love is that they are so not at all like CM Punk in any way. Like, they're just this entirely different thing. So that plays up the dichotomy for when Punk comes back. But I, I enjoyed this. I thought everyone, everyone in the segment um, performed their, uh, their piece very well. This show was, I feel like, the show where Gabe re- really realized that, like, Colt's comedy was something he could use, and we've noted that whenever Ga- in these early years, whenever Gabe found someone, a wrestler that he felt was good on the mic, they would get a ton of backstage promo time. So, of course, G- Colt would get his own like backstage show with Ring of Honor. So, I feel like this is the the. I think Gabe even wrote on the Ring of Honor website during like one of the locker room news sections, like you'll see Colt and Ace start to get to show their personality more on future releases, like around this time. So clearly, he I, I think he was starting to buy into, hey, you know, this Colt's funny. I should start like featuring that on every show, like give him time because he gets plenty of time here. And I think it was a good idea. And finally, we have the main event, the Ring of Honor Tag Team Title Match, AJ Styles, and the you know they were hyping. We, I should guess we should mention after intermission they were hyping hyping during the four way like oh you know they're still gonna make you know they're still gonna have a tag title match tonight, but AJ's gonna get to pick a partner. That partner here is revealed to be Homicide. You know, coming out with Julius Smokes, and they defeat the prophecy of Christopher Daniels and Dan Moff with Allison Danger and Jim Cornette at their side. They win in 18 minutes, 18 seconds when AJ pins Christopher Daniels after he hits a Styles Clash on on a. Jim Cornette's tennis rackets, one of those classic old Jim Cornette things where he goes to throw the racket to Christopher Daniels, Daniels misses or whatever, and then the racket gets used against them. You know, an old Midnight Express spot. Matt, how do you think this stacked up as the main event for a show? Well, I enjoyed the beginning, like where like so like Homicide came out, and then at da- and AJ went right after Daniels. Uh, Homicide went right after Moff, and they they had an intense brawl. Then they got in the ring and they kind of did something a little quirky. Which is they uh, they chase Danger and Cornette into the ring. Cornette and Danger bumped into each other, and then AJ Styles and Homicide proceeded to rowboat Jim Cornette and Alice and Danger right at the beginning of this match. It does count as bad on woman violence. Yes. At the very least, though, it is a little bit cartoonish, so it's not quite as disturbing. But then, what makes it disturbing all over again is when Gabe excitedly goes. Uh, Alice in Danger, her legs are spread apart. Get the camera in there. Get the camera in there. Which is Gabe's most disgustingly rapey comment of the night. Um, so <laughs> Maybe this, his most ever so far. Yeah, it's possible. Certainly very over-the-top uh, Jerry Lawler plus. You know, like not just Jerry Lawler, but Jerry Lawler plus. Um, the match eventually settles down... Um, uh, into just more of a conventional match, and they actually have the baby faces in control early. Um, you know, they get they get a decent amount of time to to quote shine. Um, then Danger trips Homicide on the outside, so he pulls her up by the hair. A more man on woman violence. So the streak 
is firmly intact here. Um, in case you were not sure about the uh, rowboat spot. And then uh, Moff uses that moment to kind of take back over on Homicide. And so that's when they kind of start working over Homicide. Um, this segment of the match, I think, is pretty decent. You know, they're doing very basic heel work, but I think that Daniels does it with some degree of panache. Um, like, they do the abdominal stretch, but Cornette uh, is holding up the the racket, and Daniels grabs the racket for extra leverage. Um, you know, the Koji clutch, all that stuff. I, I think it's it's pretty decent. Um, it goes on for a little too long, though, I, I think. Um, and, and the crowd, like, it is definitely tired here. The crowd's very tired. So the match doesn't fully have the intensity that you might want for a main event, especially in a new market. Um, Daniels misses the rocket launcher, and then Homicide slides under Moff's legs to get the hot tag on AJ. And AJ hits the discus clothesline for two. He misses the moonsault DDT, gets German suplexed by Moff. Then he goes for another moonsault DDT, and it's, like, very awkward. Like, I almost thought he was supposed to be caught, and then he, like, struggles out of that and hits it. It was, it was definitely some some sort of botch. One of the worst-looking ones he's hit in Ring of Honor so far. Yeah, I'd say the, one of the worst-looking ones I've ever seen by him. But... Uh, you know, it happens to everybody, I guess. Um, I thought he he and Moth didn't look quite on the same page in general. I thought they just looked a little bit sloppy together. Yeah, I think in general there was something off about AJ in this match. Um, yeah, I, I agree. I was yeah. wondering if I was thinking I was crazy on that. I mean, I'm glad you saw it, too. Yeah, Homicide looked better here than he did in the uh, in his first match. But AJ, I just, he just wasn't, he wasn't totally flush. He just wasn't totally there. Uh, you know, and everyone has an off night. Maybe he was sick. Yeah. Maybe you know anything. But this was definitely not his best night, um, and that's rare for AJ Styles, I think. So it's it was notable. But um, you know, then they then then it totally breaks down. Uh, they actually hit the rocket launcher this time, but Homicide uh, breaks up the cover. Um, and there's a there's an STF, but Moff saves. I have no idea who's legal at this point. They totally ignore that. Um, and I think at this point the crowd, the the match really loses steam. Like there's a half uh, half Nelson half Nelson suplex. None of these moves really like pop. I guess Moth and Smokes they start to fight on the floor. So the continuation of Smokes actually seeming like a someone who could handle himself, um, which doesn't last forever. Um, side goes for the tope, but Moth pulls Smokes in the way, and Homicide actually takes out Smokes, which I don't remember seeing in any other matches. So that's that's noteworthy too. Yeah. Um, uh, Daniel shoves, a, and then that actually wakes up the crowd. And uh, so, uh, so Daniels escapes the cot killer, hits the angel's wings. AJ breaks it up. Uh, Daniels uh, shoves AJ into the ref. Cornette throws, uh, th- throws him the racket, and Daniels goes to hit AJ but misses, and AJ Styles clashes Daniels on the racket for the win. So I thought the finish was good. I thought the match kind of dragged, though. Like I said, AJ wasn't really feeling it here. It doesn't seem like. Uh, it was a solid... And, like, professional main event, I guess. I don't think the crowd, like, would probably feel gypped. But it certainly wasn't the best match these guys could have had. I, I agree. This is another match where I, I think this show tops out at just, oh, that was good for, like, you know, this match and the B.J. Whitmer match. And, you know, the uh, to me, the opener was kind of good for its flawed the, se- the second city nasty. saints match yeah yeah that too so i feel that's kind of where a lot of, of all those matches kind of at least these two and the second city saints one kind of st- sit on a tier of that level and that's where it tops out this kind of felt almost to me like a you know ring of honor is a, a promotion that like a lot of hot indies made its bones on you know 
these guys are going to go out and everyone here either loves wrestling and they're, and they're so hungry or they're trying to make a name for themselves and they're going to just go 100% every time out. This didn't feel quite like that. This felt like if Ring of Honor was WWE and they were doing a house show, this would be a house show main event level performance. Like they're, they're trying hard, but they're not giving you everything. They're, you know, there are things you know that they would do on a bigger show that they're not doing here. Even, uh, even, think- just, even just the pace. Yeah, I think you know is is a major difference. Just like the 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 pep in the step. I, I think Gabe said something when he was recapping this for the Ring of Honor website that like it perfectly mixed the old school and the new school. I, I, I wouldn't agree. It was like a perfect mix. I can see what he meant though, in the sense of it does have the big moves, but it also you know has some of the cornet old school interference spots. It had a little bit it had that brawl to start. It, it, it does have an extended face and peril sequence, and they had, you know, they did like the rocket launcher and things like that. So they were, tr- I did like that they were trying to do touches to the old the, because Cornette was there. Uh, but yeah, it just it, it's just a fun. It's fine. It's and, and like I thought it was, the, the, I thought it was the second best tag match on the show. Yeah, I mean, honestly, it probably was. It probably wasn't as good as the other one, even though to some that might say, like, are you crazy? But and and I, I again, I'm so happy that you said that AJ didn't look great because it was weird. It almost felt like AJ wasn't in the match a lot and he might have been or something. But you would think with Homicide pulling double duty and this card being a little bit weaker on star power, well, maybe a lot weaker, you'd think like AJ would really do a lot here. And again, it just. AJ doesn't really feel like he does a ton here. And uh, I did like Dan Moff selling. I, I thought Dan Moff was so hammy here, but in a great way. Yeah, he like went when Homicide like kicked him, and he was like, like yeah, with his lips. Yeah, he blows a raspberry with his yeah. lips in that spot. There's another point where he gets hit with a chair, and he sells it by looking stunned straight up in the air and doing the sign of the cross on his chest. <laughs> I mean, like he was such a goofball here, but I thought it was really in, like funny in a good way. Again, maybe another old school touch where he's not. He he wasn't selling here like the super intense strong style like ring of honor match it was it was more like an old school 80s heel like ooh you got me like i'm going to pop my eyes open real big and things like that moff is an, I, moff is another guy who i think is like a refreshing surprise from back like he was pretty talented and like i can understand why they gave him a push i mean you can tell it's it's weird to say this but you can tell he really is a big fan of wrestling like when yeah. he reaches back for those gestures and stuff like that like that's very old school that he knows to do that kind of stuff yeah um one other thing i thought was really cool in a way and obviously this isn't intentional but knowing where jim Cornette's future with ring of honor is with the huge um homicide angle it's i think it's really cool that looking back Cornette's first match he's involved with in Ring of Honor history is basically he has this devious plan to get the prophecy of the tag titles and Homicide screws it up by being AJ's mystery partner. That's a good point. I wonder if I don't think they ever actually refer back to that, but it'll be interesting to see if they do. Again, it's completely unintentional, but it does in a weird way tie into the future. Yes. Because it does show that like even when I first came in here you were like fucking up my shit, you know. Oh, you it's symbolism. Plan. It's symbolism because homicide wrestled the future earlier on in the night. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows exactly how many times how how often Colt Cabana's going to get laid tonight. Yeah. So, uh, 
Oh, and okay, uh, the final word on this match. The thing I thought was the cutest moment on a night with a few cute moments, Matt. My favorite moment was, you know, Julie Smokes, who can be pretty intimidating. He was talking outside and, like, calling down the prophecy. And I just laughed so hard at this. At one point, he goes, you ain't, you ain't got nothing you ain't you, you're not you a fake prophecy he <laughs> and he's so angry about it like i love the idea that cult that i mean julius smokes is offended that they're not a real prophecy yeah he, he <laughs> you a fake prophecy that's pretty good it was like yeah you know, i, I want to keep track of these moments i really loved on the previous show where he was like cold cabana oh rosanna <laughs> yeah, he, he repeats so much stuff. It's funny because when he usually doesn't repeat, it's like a weird, like little yeah. nugget of gold. Like right, right. Just, when he says something we, actually original, yes. Yeah, when he's like trying to riff to what's in front of him, like yeah, like even though it doesn't, it's not clever. It's just like you a fake prophecy, and he's so <laughs> indignant about it. It's it's just great. But, one of the one of the great characters in yeah. wrestling in the two thousands. Um. After the match, Cornette is angry. He's angry at um at Christopher Daniels, thinking he screwed up the match. You know that his fault. It's his fault that the racket thing screwed up. Um, he shakes AJ and Homicide's hands. He says it was you know he keeps while he shakes his hands. He's like you know it's Daniels' fault that that we lost. But he's being the big man and shaking their hands. Uh, when Cornette's about to shake Julius smokes his hand, which I think would be like a real meeting of the minds, like one of the great handshakes of our time. Uh, Daniels unfortunately breaks it up by shoving Cornette, and I wrote thus breaking up the handshake of the century. Uh, Cornette and Daniels get into a shouting match. Daniels then attacks Cornette. That gets a pop, actually. Um, Moth gives Cornette a body slam. And it was one of those body slams where you could tell he was really trying to protect Jim Cornette. Didn't look that good. Like, he's trying to be very gentle with him. Well, just the idea that, like, in a beatdown after a match, Dan Moth would go for the scoop slam. <laughs> yeah, that's what you do when you're really angry about losing it in a fight. You go for the body slam. You see, um, you see that a lot in Ring of Honor beatdowns. Well, you see that in UFC in real heated fights. Like, they go yeah. straight to the body slam. Yeah. You know? It's like, this This one's too big for punches. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Daniels and Moth lay the boots to him until a limping, amazing red comes in. And he, he has a tennis racket, or he grabs the tennis racket. He starts hitting guys with shots. But very quickly, he goes down to... Right, right, and, well, red comes down to make the save on the guy who masterminded the brutal attack that took him out of the match tonight. He forgave yeah. very quickly. Yeah, such a weird thing. And also, because Red, I don't know if he was really this bad off or doing this for to sell it, but he was limping so bad and his comeback lasted so little, it kind of made him look bad. Like, he needed to be saved from his save. Like he Immediately. He yeah, there's something weird about needing, like, I know it's like, oh, he's, it's supposed to be, he's so valiant, he's so hurt on one leg, even though he can't do it, he's trying to save guys. But to me, it almost came off as like, man, he shouldn't have done that. <laughs> like, And again, and again, AJ, not there to, for the rescue. Yeah, again, AJ, the worst big brother ever. Nor is the SAT, um, to be fair. Yeah, that's the other thing, where's the SAT? Um so eventually, they, they should have been with Red and be like, no, don't go out there. And if you are going out there, we're coming. Yeah, like three guys could change the tide of this, not yeah. one guy on one leg. But yeah. um, eventually Red goes down. But Samoa Joe comes in and he makes the house clearing save. He's the one who gets to get everyone to bail. That leaves him and Red and Cornette alone in the ring. Cornette shakes Joe's hand and he lifts Red and 
uh, Samoa Joe's arms. Really huge, surprisingly loud and long Ring of Honor chant, especially considering, as you said earlier, how tired this crowd got. They really, like, if you were thinking, oh, maybe they're not as into the show, it must have just been that they were tired because they really do a loud ROH chant. Yeah, and, um, and, and like I said earlier, like, we, as watching all these shows, are not that impressed by this one. But f- for a live wrestling card in your hometown, you know, in 2003, when you don't really know what to expect, this had some quality wrestling. You know what I mean? Like, th- these guys worked hard, and they gave them a show. And that's probably not normal for just if you're going out to an indie one night. Yeah, even what we were saying earlier, like you were saying about the cornet stuff being kind of disappointing. On this night to this crowd, again, considering what they might have gotten normally, this was enough for them. They were happy with what they got here. And um, then they finally, in the other big development of the night, they finally apparently got the wireless mic working because Cornette's allowed to cut a promo in the ring with it. So he doesn't have to, I would have loved if he had to have <laughs> entrance to get the cord mic. But um uh, <laughs> Jim Cornette says, it's not often I say this, but the fans were right and I was wrong. He goes, it's not the prophecy, it's Ring of Honor. So he tells the crowd to give themselves a round of applause. He raises Joe's hand again. And what I was talking about earlier with this is like a classic trope when um, a big name comes into a company. It's it's the whole thing where a, a big name comes into a smaller company like an indie. They act like they're not impressed by it. And then by the end of the night, well, go, gosh darn, this show's really showed me how great your promotion is. Like, you're you're the greatest. You've proved, you know, I think years later they would try that a little bit with maybe with Shane Douglas, where the crowd would shit on Shane Douglas so much, he'd be like, Ring of Honor's a piece of shit because he got so mad. And then later he had to come back out and be like, Ring of Honor is the shit or whatever. Like, I was there for that. And we could talk about it in a few years. Yeah, in a few years that that'll be worth the wait, folks. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's just so in a way, you know, like it's a trope for a reason because it does work. I think it is a way to kind of use a bigger name to put over a company for someone like me who's seen it a few times. It's kind of like eh, that's it's predictable and kind of. But again, you know, maybe the story of this night is what. This isn't a show for hardcore watch every show Ring of Honor fans. This was more of a a, a win if you just happen to be a person in Ohio who hadn't seen a lot of this level of indie wrestling. Yes. But we cut to Homicide and Julia Smokes outside. Homicide cuts another promo on Steve Carino, just like a generic promo. Uh, Smoke says the phrase ECW Wax Museum twice, which I thought was funny. They say Crino is scared and scared. Both scared and scared, they say. And yeah, so just keep in building that up. That They have a match on the next show. Um, and then we're time. We have for another super close Samoa Joe backstage promo where the camera is right in his face. We see every pore on his nose. And Joe could use some blackhead strips. It's not the best poor structure. Um, Joe congratulates BJ for his effort tonight, but says he's not the champ. Joe is because Joe will sacrifice everything for the belt. Joe says Paul London sacrificed his future career with WWE to face Joe, but it wasn't enough. He says Dan Moff sacrificed his emotions in his mind, being willing to fight Joe right after his dad died, but it wasn't enough. He said Joe says Homicide risked his life and almost broke his neck facing Joe, but it wasn't enough. Joe wonders who's next, and he throws out the names of Matt Stryker and Colt Cabana. He mentions he has an upcoming non-title match with CM Punk, 
And then he turns his attention to low-key, and I thought he did something really clever here, where he says, the first time we fought, I wasn't there to beat low-key, I was there to hurt you, which plays into the story of, when he first came in, he was a hired gun of Christopher Daniels, that his job in that match was just to hurt low-key. So, I like the way that he kind of says, like, hey, I only lost because I was trying to hurt you, I wasn't trying to win. Um... He says, Key has no idea what Joe is willing to do to beat him. Joe mentions Christopher Daniels saying, Chris took his friends away from him, which is referencing beating the, the losing faction must disband match with the group. Joe is now starting to seethe, really breathing through his teeth. He uh, ends with his usual, I am Samoa Joe. I am the Ring of Honor World Champion. I am pro wrestling. This was another really, really good Samoa Joe promo. He is really underrated as a promo during this era. I thought this was the the easily best thing on the show, full stop. Like, better than any of the matches, better than any of the other backstage segments. This was a great promo. It told the story. It got over the character. It got over the stakes of the title. It got over the title more than anything ever has yet in the company. Uh, got o- it. It made built anticipation for matches in the future that did and did not happen. Um, the only weakness of the promo, I think, was asking us to buy the notion that losing C.W. Anderson and Michael Shane was a great emotional toll. Took a great emotional toll on Samoa Joe. That's the only weakness of the promo. Everything else about it was great. Also, it's like the faction has to disband, but like Michael Shane was on his show. Like you could still hang out with him. And Steve Steve Carino's coming back. Yeah. I mean, you can't team with him, but you're the singles champ. How often are you teaming with guys? Like, yeah. It's not like your friends had to leave the company. Um, It's all about that C.W. Anderson. He misses him so much. (laughs) Well, see, maybe that's why he became like best friends with CM Punk because that was like the closest he could do initial wise. Yeah, very close. That's really as close as you can get. <laughs> I what I loved about this was um, I've I've mentioned before Gabe on his commentary. He tries to always reference every single story point that like came before a match. Like you might remember the classic match they had on this day, and then this happened on this day, and this happened on this day. And I love what Gabe's trying to do, but he does it so it's just like spewing out a mile a minute of list of dates, right? And it never really hits. What I love here is Joe kind of did the thing Gabe wants to do, which is like really always tie back into the history of the company, but he did it in such a natural organic way. Like he was telling a story, you know, he, he was referencing all these old matches, but rather than saying, I beat Paul Lennon on this date, I beat homicide on this date. He was like, this is what each of these guys did to try and beat me. You know, this is what they kind of sacrificed. And every time it wasn't enough. And, and he's just threading it together and putting them over and putting himself over and, his delivery is so great it's like everyone goes oh you know joe was one of the best wrestlers in the world 2004 to 2006 or whatever he was one of the best promos on the indies by 2003 for sure mentions that yeah for sure and like this is like he's this is the moment that the roh title starts to mean something like right during like these like few shows right here like you can really feel it becoming prestigious because of samoa joe on these shows which is probably why I liked the, the Whitmer match as much as I did. It still felt like something. Like something was happening with Samoa Joe. And even on this, even on this like lesser match of his, it's, you could still feel it. Yeah, like his whole gimmick is, I am the champion. Yes. And, and, and the longer that goes, the more it starts to feel special. When you're, you're not just going like, hey, I'm this cool guy and I happen to also have this prop. It's like, 
Like, no, I'm the champion. People keep trying to take this from me, and they can't do it. Although I did used to like, I, I did used to have the shirt, the uh, the Mojo shirt. Hey, I'm this cool guy, and I also have this prop. That was a <laughs> that was a really good shirt. <laughs> I, I have got a lot of, got a lot of compliments. I have a shirt too that it says that on the back, but on the front it's a carrot top shirt. Oh, I love that comedy. Nice. Uh, <laughs> We cut to Steve Carino somewhere. I don't know where he is, if he's in Japan or not, because obviously he's not, wasn't on this show, but he has some kind of tape interview. Um, okay, here we go. Carino is mad at Ring of Honor. He says the last time he was in Ring of Honor, they sent the gang members over the rail to attack him. Carino says, we're all, all us fans, we're smart, and we read the sheets. So we know wrestling is based on one, ha- on one hand taking care of another. He says, you think wrestling is all one big magic show. And so people online say the riot was a work. Carino says he wasn't thinking that when he saw all those people jump the rail. He starts talking about homicide, admitting he's a great athlete, but saying, it's a stupid name. It means murder, which I thought was pretty funny. Like, he explained what homicide means to us. Yeah. Um, he goes, you think that's marketable? Uh, Carino says that Ring of Honor shoves homicide down the fans' throats all the time. He says he has nothing to prove against homicide. He's already beaten them. He says that people say there's no gimmicks in Ring of Honor, but what about the gang members? Carino mentions homicide needs to get his heat back. And then talks about Homicide mentioning Carino's son and says he doesn't bring up Homicide's 15 kids he doesn't pay his child support for. Carino says he doesn't need Ring of Honor, but Homicide does because he gets off on the internet fans saying how great it is. Carino says Ring of Honor doesn't matter. International wrestling does because those fans don't go on the internet and talk about how they can do it better. I wrote at this point, does Carino know Japanese? Is he reading Japanese message Yeah, words? yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Carino says he's going to beat Homicide one last time and then close this chapter on Ring of Honor. Carino says he makes more money in Japan and doesn't have to work as hard, which I <laughs> didn't make it back to Japan. Um, Carino wants Homicide to sit in the shower after the next match and ask himself if it was worth it. He says he's going to blow Homicide up and make him submit, and then on Monday he wants Homicide to call him, apologize, and then maybe he'll help Homicide move on to bigger and better things. Carino ends by threatening to end Homicide's career and says, keep bringing my son into this. We'll see how much of a work it's going to be. Now, Matt, when we talked about this briefly, you lumped this in with the Joe promo as the highlight of the show. And I told you, I couldn't agree more with you saying the the Samoa Joe promo was one of the best things on the show. I couldn't disagree more about the Steve Carino promo. Um well, I know you probably love the passion in this. Yeah, well, I think your critique is about all like the the Russo riffic like shoot winky shoot references. I'm guessing that's your biggest beef with the promo. Yeah, I mean, just so much of this isn't going to be a work, you know, or you know, calling out the fans like, oh, you're behind your keyboards and all this stuff, and you know, like it's just. Yeah, it's too... And even going back to the homicide stuff earlier, where he goes right to the camera, like, ah, f- screw you, Carino, that's a shoot. Like, you know what real shoots look like? I hate this... My, when, you know when something is a shoot? When people aren't saying it's a shoot all the time. Like, you want to see what it looks like when two wrestlers work with each other and really don't like each other? Watch, like, the latter-day Shawn Michaels Bret Hart stuff. That is two people, and they're never saying, this is a shoot, this is a real... They are trying to work together, and that fucking hatred they have for each other bubbles over. And then most of it bubbles over in places you don't see, like the locker room. Like, real, it's just, you took something really cool, 
and you're just constantly saying, oh, it's a shoot, it's going to be a shoot, this isn't going to be a work like everything else. And the more you say it, the more you're kind of working against, like, the less you make me feel like that. Yeah, I mean, I agree with all of your criticism, and I also think it was a really good promo. Um, every single thing that Carino said during like this two-year period, like 2002, 2003 in ROH, including a lot of stuff that he says in upcoming shows, has this element of, well, I'm talking about the internet, the marks online, this is a work, I'm a heel. Like, he just goes to it, he's obsessed with it. It's his whole shtick. And, you know, it's annoying, I agree, but it is what it is. But yes, I really liked the passion, I really liked the delivery, I thought it was so entertaining. Like, I thought he was so exasperated. Like, he was like, homicide, like, what are you even doing? Like, you know, you're, you're, you're gonna, this is not worth it, this company, it's not, you know, you're, you're, you're messing yourself up. Like, almost like he was trying to be benevolent to homicide. Even saying after he beat him, to call him and he'll help him get into a better promotion. Like, I just, it was just a different way of going about it. And the and, funny thing is, that part is true because after this match, uh, in September, Homicide gets a tour of zero one thanks to Steve Carino. So that part's true. Yeah. So, like, so it's just like, just, I just like, I just enjoyed the com the comical i guess how comical it was that he's just so frustrated with how self-sabotaging homicide is uh, like like homicide hates carino's guts and carino is just like homicide like can you just freaking relax like you're messing everything up like I, I i like that dynamic um of course when the match itself comes they're both just you know they both just are full of hatred and I can't wait to talk about that match next time because, like, I've been looking forward to that one for a long time. So part of me enjoying this promo is just like, okay, this was the go-home promo to one of my favorite matches, period, of 2003. So I can't wait to see how that match holds up in the context of everything that we've watched. I, I, I actually, I do think of it a little bit better, like, the way you put it made me think, like, I do think the tone of this promo was good. I, even though if I disliked a lot of the content... I like that tone, like you were saying, of he's not screaming angry like Homicide. Like You can tell he's angry when he talks about the kid stuff, but it's more of this almost demeaning, like, I'm going to beat you one more time, and then like just grow up and I'll get you a job. Like, yeah. it, 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 It's kind of like this, like he's almost being worse because he's looking down on him so much, he's treating him just like probably Vince McMahon treats the guy who will get his coffee or something. Like, just look... I know you think you can beat me. I'll beat you one more time. And then if you're nice, like, you can finally work somewhere serious. Like, thanks to me. Like, it's just, like, that tone is great. It, it's such a great kind of just shitty, egotistical way to, to talk to somebody. Yeah. And like I said, the match itself sets up, I think, adds to it a lot. We'll just say that. I, I, yeah. I mean, I haven't watched it in, in, in years, but I can't wait to watch it. Yeah, I'm really excited for that, too. And we finally end the show with Colt and Ace finally find Rob Feinstein in the back of the building. I, this looks like as the ring crew is tearing down the ring. Um, Rob's on his phone. Colt hangs up the phone for Rob. Colt asks Rob about the field of honor. Rob says he doesn't think Colt really deserves anything after Punk shoved him down on the last show and Colt just watched. But he tells Colt it's a tournament and Colt is invited. Colt is pumped. He says it's the greatest day in Second City history. Ace asks, what about the bar mitzvah? And Colt says, that was the second best. Uh, Colt and Ace walk away, walk away, and the camera person, who was supposed to be Lucy, 
hangs back, and then the camera drops almost Blair Witch style. So like it seems like someone's attacked Lucy, and the camera pans to a piece of paper that have the word has the words "Rust Never Sleeps" on it. And for those who don't know, "Rust Never Sleeps" is a great Neil Young and Crazy Horse Live album, and also is a tattoo Raven has on his arm. So. Dun, dun, dun. And that is the start of the ra- Lacey, I was going to say Racy, it's not Racy, the Lacey nope. has been attacked storyline. Lucy. Oh, Lucy. Lacey comes, Lacey, Lacey. Lacey comes later. Oh, God, yes, I actually wrote Lacey, no, Lucy. Okay, so, and that is the show. Um, I, I know, Matt, you also brought up to me that you liked that, again, like, Rob is getting intimidated by Colt Cabana, but he still puts him in the tournament. Yeah, well, also just like he's not the, like he was angry at Cabana. He was like like the way the, all the stuff that he used that you uh, quoted from him. He said it in this really angry, exasperated way. Like your friend CM Punk, he pushed me down last show, and I'm not gonna give you anything. But yeah, it's a tournament, and you're invited. Like it was just like like he said it like yeah, I'm gonna get you. You get exactly what you want. Like <laughs> <laughs> it's like between this and the. Uh the Christopher Daniels getting a number one contenders match after attacking and laying out red. It's like ring of honor is the worst parent ever here. Like rewarding everyone for being complete assholes. Pretty much. So that was the show. And I'm going to say this is, if you have to sit down and watch this show, it's not going to be painful to watch, but I would say this is the least essential show we have watched yet. I would say that. There's really nothing on this show that you need to see. Honestly, as far as in the ring, I think that some of the backstage stuff is actually like some of the better stuff they've done. Um, the Joe promo in particular, I really liked the Cabana segments. I enjoyed the Carino promo. Um, in the ring, this is definitely the most skippable show yet by far. Um, but the DVD does have some really entertaining stuff at the end. Um, but yeah, uh, it's, uh, they, they did not load this show with much C matches. It was probably pretty fun live, uh, on DVD. It just doesn't hold up with what the company's been putting out. I would say it's actually much better overall than a lot of the 2002 shows, but what those shows had going for them were they each had some really standout, amazing match. And this doesn't have anything close to that. Yeah, like this show, I mean, it has a little bit of historical value in the sense it's their first show outside of the Northeast. It starts the Lucy uh, storyline, which isn't much historical value. It's the first ever Ring of Honor match for Nigel McGuinness. And like you said, it has the backstage stuff, but it's just, if even if I was saying to someone, this is only, uh, this is this is a show I would only recommend to people that would want every single Ring of Honor show. And even then, I would say, like, make this one of the last shows you pick up, unless you're watching them in order. Because it's just so inessential. It's not necessary to see, even if there are moments that are fun. I would agree with all that. So, that'll end the show. And, as always, you can contact us at throughtheyears at gmail.com if you'd like to write an email. T-H-R-O-H is through, how you spell through. Um, at Trevor Dame on Twitter or at Mayor MGF on Twitter. We po- we have threads in the Pro Wrestling Only message board, the- which just had a relaunch. We're doing some really cool content stuff. Um, the F4W board, Voices of Wrestling, ROH Worlds, lots of message boards. 
And next time, we will be covering Bitter Friends, Stiffer Enemies, which has CM Punk. It's, their, it's Ring of Honor's debut in Connecticut. It has CM Punk versus uh, Samoa Joe. It has Loki knocking out Dan Moth. And it has Xavier versus Christopher Daniels for the number one contendership. And finally, it has Steve Carino versus Homicide in what I remember to be a crazy goddamn match. Yeah, and also has one of the more hilarious titles of any ROH show ever. You know, and also you know, and also Google the cover art for this DV, for that DVD. Oh, yeah. It is even worse than the title. So we, I, I really look forward to that, and I'll look forward to all of you coming back and listening to us again. Thank you so much, and till next time.